the dwarf. Larry likes to dress up funny. Tonight he's dressed up like Frank Zappa. Let's ask him, what's the deal? Howdy folks, this is Scott Parker and you're listening to episode number 26 of the ZappaCast for December of 2015. We're going to sneak in another episode before the end of the year, but we wanted to get this one in because we wanted to direct your attention to the recent release of a new book called Zaftig, the Zappa Family Trust Issues Guide, which is a guide to the recordings of Frank Zappa on uh, Compact Disc, and uh, the book is written by Ed Kamara, who, as you will hear shortly, has had a very distinguished career as a uh, musical historian and researcher. I've also played a role in the writing of this book, and the book is available from www.spbpublishing.webs.com. It is also available from Amazon.com and other right-thinking booksellers, and uh, you'll hear a description of the book as we go through the podcast. We're going to be interviewing 
Ed Kamara in this episode, and we had a very enjoyable conversation, as you will hear. So without any further ado, folks, here is my chat with Ed Kamara. We're talking Zaftig right here on the ZappaCast. All right, folks, and now for the main event on this uh, episode of the ZappaCast. We're here with the uh, most honorable Mr. Ed Kamara, and uh, he is the author of the uh, new book, uh, Zaftig, which is uh, a sort of examination of the music of Frank Zappa on compact disc. Just so you folks know, I've had a small part to play in the writing of that book. How are you? Very good. All hail Scott Parker. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've been buying uh, your Zappa series uh, since the first volume came out. Oh, really? Uh, many years ago. Was it about four years ago, five years ago? Oh, seven years ago. Okay. Mm-hmm. Time goes by fast. Yeah, yeah very but, fast. No, I remember getting Hungry Freak's Daddy. And I was like, "This is the way it should be done." And uh, <laughs> Thank so, you very much. Uh, yeah. So I think that was, I think, I think it was after the second or third book. That's when you and I started corresponding. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. right. But uh, yeah, you know, it's just been a great series to follow, and it's just uh, well, great that we could do Zaftig, the guide uh, to all the CD issues, and uh, to visit you today. This is this is a real treat for me too. Yeah, this is great. I mean, we're actually in, uh, folks. We're actually uh, speaking at. Uh, uh, Brass City Records in Waterbury, Connecticut, which is the uh, very place where I heard Frank Zappa for the first time. And uh, you're actually, your your uh, career voucher, is, mm-hmm. is a career voucher, is uh, actually quite distinguished. Yep. And um, you've written a, a number of books. Um, perhaps you can um, give a, a plug to some of your books okay, yeah, for the audience. I, uh, that Well, definitely what people are going to know me for are my writings on the blues. Yes, of course. Uh, my uh, previous job, my first job after graduate school was as blues archivist and music librarian at the University of Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the school that's known as Ole Miss. Yep. And uh, so you watch the football listings. You know, Ole Miss, that's you know, uh, University of Mississippi. I was there for eight years. And I was, uh, among other duties, I was charged with running an archive devoted to the blues, called mm-hmm. simply the Blues Archive. And it was a great location. You're only an hour's drive uh, east of the Mississippi Delta. So I went to my fair share of festivals and performances. Uh, but, and yet I was also right in the middle of one of the academic centers for the state of Mississippi. And uh, while I was there, uh, I published my master's thesis on Charlie Parker. I did my graduate work at the State University of New York at Buffalo. So I was there, I published my uh, Charlie Parker book, and then, boom, really started working on blues, especially on pre-World War II blues. And so it was there that I uh, uh, compiled uh, an anthology of writings by the Dean of American Blues Researchers, Gail Dean Wardlow. Yeah. Uh, All those articles he wrote in the... 60s and 70s that everyone in the 80s was plagiarizing mm-hmm. and so we published that as Chasing That Devil Music mm-hmm. and then I also wrote my Robert Johnson book uh, in coordination with uh, Robert Johnson Projects uh, with the Hale Leonard Corporation with their new transcriptions. That had some delays on the Hale Leonard end but that finally appeared in 2007 but uh, all that was written while still at uh, the University of Mississippi and then um, during my last year, that's when I began working with Revenant Records, uh, when John Fahey was still alive, uh, began working with Dean Blackwood and John Fahey for the Charlie Patton box set, Screaming and Holland the Blues. Mm-hmm. And then um, I, uh, since uh, 2001, I've been at uh, the, the State University of New York at Potsdam, where is the Crane School of Music. I oversee the music library for the School of Music. 
uh, books, scores, records, the whole bit, classical music and jazz. I sneaked a little blues in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I've been able to continue my research in blues, and that's where I finished editing the Routledge Encyclopedia of the Blues, and uh, also continued with uh, reviewing blues books, blues CDs for uh, various journals. And now, and I've been happy that the job gives me enough flexibility to uh, do the occasional review of Frank Zappa CDs, and now Zaptic, the Zappa Family Trust Issues Guide. So, uh, <laughs> so it, it's been a very good place that lends itself for me to undertake research and publish it with good people. So, so uh, it's been a good home for me uh, so far. Oh, that's so. great. See, one of. Um uh, one of your uh, more recent books is uh, a book uh, called uh, "100 uh, Blues Books Every Fan Every Blues Fan Should Own," yep. and uh, that is actually one of my uh, favorite books. I highly recommend any of Ed's books, but I would highly recommend that to anybody who is um, interested in uh, yep. learning their history and, and finding a starting point for the things that they need to read in order to. And one thing that I've been very proud of with that book is. Uh, uh, my co-author is my successor at the Blues Archive at Ole Miss. Oh, really? So, yeah. So, uh, so we could have about 25 years of expertise, uh, combined expertise, uh, of, from the Blues Archives uh, into that book. So, oh, that's great. That, that, that's one reason why that means a lot to me right now. I wanted to make sure we got those plugs in because, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> because I think it's important. Okay, so, so tell me about Zafdig. How did you come up with the idea to put together a book about the well, uh, you may remember back in uh, the '90s, early '90s. Oh no, actually, late '80s when Ryko Disc began reissuing Frank Zappa's music. Mm-hmm. They began including those cheesy little booklets. You know, uh, you know, other you know, we're you know the Frank Zappa catalog on Ryko Disc. Yes, you know. Um, so uh, we, uh, so I remember this would be now three years ago. Reading the news about the Zappa family, you know, Gail Zappa really uh, mm-hmm. uh, acquiring the tapes back from Ryko Disc for uh, the Zappa family trust own issues of all the early music. Mm-hmm. You know, so that way they could offer it all through uh, Barfco Swill and their website. Mm-hmm. So, um, in fact, I wrote to you and said, uh, you know, do you think. Uh, There'll be anything done along the lines of those cheesy little Ryko disc booklets, and you and you thought maybe maybe not, but maybe that can be a Scott Parker books project. I'm like, that sounds great. Yeah, let's <laughs> let's start working on that. And uh, so um, I had. Um, it's good that you mentioned the 100 Blues Books project that mm-hmm. I did with my co-author Greg Johnson, uh, because I arranged for a six month sabbatical for my job, six months off to do nothing but research, mm-hmm. and. Um, so uh, and I opted to do it during the winter months in Potsdam, which are very cold and very snowy. So it was ideal. Uh, so um, so I could just stay cocooned in my house and work on the blues book. But at the end of each day, I basically cataloged a Frank Zappa album or two for the uh, for the Zaftig guide, and it was you know getting the uh, titles of the songs, the personnel. Uh, any other notes, and then setting up uh, the individual bits of data, whether it's title data, name data, first lines, and uh, putting them into spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so, uh, so the bulk of the compilation of all the data that's into the books uh, was done during that six-month period. And then, um, 
And then I think I did a little test run with you, I think just of the You Can't Do That on Stage Anymore series. Mm -hmm. uh, we did uh, the six volumes of that. I did a little test run to make sure the spreadsheets were going to operate okay and that everything could be resorted. And then I shared the results for you and said, what do you think? Do you think this is going to be okay? And you came and you wrote back and said, yeah, this is going to work out fine. Yeah. And then I just proceeded with the other uh, albums uh, on up, which at that time was 97. And then over the last couple of years, as we got up to number 100, Dance Me This, we could keep that updated uh, to produce the guide as, as we now have. So that's kind of how it started was really, could we uh, do a comparable guide? But one thing, too, was also intent was to service an index of names, song titles, and first lines to all of your discography series to date. That's it? Yeah, because I, you know, because you, you know, uh, one characteristic of your books is uh, no indexes, which is perfectly fine because mm -hmm. we're all fans. We know where to find them. Yeah. But uh, I realized that uh, to really cap the series now and towards completion would be we already now have the index ready made. Yeah. So, so anyone who's been collecting uh, the uh, Scott Parker discography series to date uh -huh. had better get Zaftig in order to get the index, because there won't be an index volume uh, except for Zaftig. Evelyn, a modified dog, viewed the quivering fringe of a special doily draped across the piano with some surprise. In the darkened room where the chairs dismayed And the horrible curtains muffled the rain She could hardly believe her eyes A curious breeze, a garlic breath Which sounded like a snore Somewhere near the Steinway or even from within Had caused the doily fringe to waft and tremble in the gloom Evelyn, a dog, having undergone further modification, pondered the significance of short-person behavior in pedal-depressed, panchromatic resonance, and other highly ambient domains. Arf, she said. We now have 100 albums, mm -hmm. and you pretty much figured, I, I'm thinking, are you halfway, or are you about, what, 40% of the way through the Zappa Earth? Because you've got some pretty heavy, uh, uh, you know, large amounts of tape to go through all those touring you know bootlegs and things to do the transcription so yes you, you thought it was you thought your discography series was going to be eight uh, volumes what do you think now do you think it's going to be 12 or 13 volumes? probably 12 yeah. probably 12 maybe 13 and then on top of that uh how many more albums are going to be released by the zappa family uh especially with joe there if he continues releasing concerts yeah, jo well, they the sky's the limit now because they have um, uh, a number of projects that I know that they're working on. Yeah, and uh, I saw the latest on um, one site or another that what they're going to be releasing Roxy as a DVD. I think they just did. Okay, they just came out with that. Okay, yep. uh, literally just came out with that. So finally, Roxy is out there, and yep. uh, uh, of course, I'm sure you all have it, but uh, we encourage you to buy it. Yep. And uh, that is available through Eagle Rock Entertainment. So, so Eagle Rock does, you know, they're pretty much your, they're fairly major force in mm -hmm. the distribution of music, um, you know, kind of archive. And so they, they, uh, yeah, they've 
put it out on DVD and Blu-ray. Okay. And I don't know if there's a lot of difference in quality between the DVD and the Blu-ray because it wasn't yeah. shot, not exactly shot in high definition, but no. the uh, the intention of the Roxy movie was for that to be a um, a TV show. Right. As As everybody will know, but of course... When you see the footage, you realize yeah. why, pretty quickly why Frank. Uh, but this is the same band, around. though, as was featured in the KCET footage. Uh, actually, it's the band just before it, so it's okay. basically the same band. Okay. Um, the KCET footage, uh, token of his extreme, was uh, a cut down version of the Roxy band. The Roxy was um, the band. The compared to the KCT TV band uh, that had uh, Bruce Fowler on trombone, of course, and uh, um, two drummers. You had Ralph Humphrey and Chester Thompson, and the bass and the rest of the band. But the the majority of the band was the same. Mm-hmm. So you're getting uh, by the time you get to the KCT period. They're playing dramatically rearranged versions, as you know, from right. from uh, you can't do that on stage volume two. They're playing dramatically rearranged versions of the stuff that they were playing at the Roxy. Uh, an example of that is Village of the Sun, which you know became a sort of odd cowboy <laughs> double time cowboy arrangement. Yeah. There's Roxy elsewhere right behind That's you, as right, a matter of yeah. fact, right there. Yeah, with the, you could tell that got moved to a few different apartments. It sure did. <laughs> All the ring wear. Yeah, yeah. I. It's funny among record collectors. I know. Uh, I say, look, if you want to keep your records in good shape, don't move. You know, because it's even just when you're, they're lying flat and they're kind of rubbing around each other. Unless they're in those, unless they're in those plastic sleeves, mm-hmm. the, the outer covers are going to get scuffed so fast. Yeah. They. They do. Yeah, yeah. I know. I've been actually reboxing my uh, my my wife for my for uh, my birthday. I got a bunch of uh, um, record uh, stackable record mm-hmm. crates, and so now you can't see one wall of my office because it's all stackable <laughs> record crates. It's just ridiculous.
Nazi and march him right on through it. When the baby kiss the baby, ladies in for tea. And here's a bunch of speeches. We'll toss them in for free. you first um, hear? Do, do you remember the first time you heard Frank Zappa? Yeah, and um, I knew of Zappa a little bit while growing up. I grew up in Geneva, New York, mm-hmm. which is a college town. It's where Hobart College and William Smith College are. Mm-hmm. It used to be something of an industrial town, but that was rapidly passing while I was growing up in the 70s and early 80s. So it was getting to be more of a college town. And uh, there is uh, an excellent record store still there. Uh, what was you know Brass City Records for you in Waterbury? Uh, we had Area Records, uh, and it's still there, uh, still uh, selling records uh, and CDs and whatnot. And I knew from what they stocked or what could they stock, Zappa was very important. Uh, but in those days, and you know, we're talking like 1983-84, Zappa wasn't all that respectable, you know. And That's true. he was very well known for the. Um, you know, scatological adult content, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Titties and beer and things like that. So uh, it wasn't anything that uh, was played all that much. It was never played on the radio. Maybe you heard a guitar solo from the Shut Up and Play Your Guitar albums on the Hobart College radio station, but mm-hmm. that was about it. 
So interesting uh, choice, though, for that. Well, they're the all instrumental. Lesson. You're not going to get in well. That's with true. The FCC. So, <laughs> so I real for all intents and purposes, I really didn't hear Zappa until I was in college. Mm-hmm. And one of my friends had the Fillmore East album. Uh, that was the one I heard for the first time all the way through. Yeah, it's the funniest album, you know. <laughs> and so, uh, but it wasn't until uh, you know bet- before my senior year, I thought, well, let's go gr- uh, buy some Frank Zappa. Problem is, at that time, Frank was only just beginning to come out with the CDs. So if you wanted the music, you had to buy it on vinyl, and people weren't going to give those up. You know, I mean, those were not turning up in the used record bins, and whenever a used record dealer came upon them, they priced them up. Mm -hmm. I remember looking into trying to get some of the early albums, the Verve albums, and I remember that, like... um, most of them would be priced at $30 a piece, mm-hmm. and Lumpy Gravy, if you ever saw it, was at $40. I remember mm-hmm. the first time I ever saw a copy of Lumpy Gravy was at a record show in Annapolis, Maryland, where I was going to school at the time. They had a copy, $40. And, mm-hmm. you know, in 1987, that was a whole lot of money. That was a lot of money. And so, uh, but uh, I, I got what I could here and there, and uh, but uh, it, was, it wasn't easy. And so, uh, and a lot of my early... Uh, listening of Frank's music was the Verve, uh, the Verve years, and also mm-hmm. what I could buy that was still available at that time. So it would be 1980s stuff, you know, from uh, Ship Arriving Too Late to Save a Drowning Witch uh, on up. So I, I, I could get a few things from the 80s uh, from shops here and there. So that's how I began. Was really in college, and then I kind of built that up bit by bit. So that's a know. very similar story to mine because yeah. when you know people forget that by the time you, that's true, by the time you yeah. get to eighty five, eighty six, yeah. unless you're willing to shell out a hundred dollars for the old master's box set, which yeah. was available, yep, um, and that had the first um, five Verve albums plus the mystery disc. That's right. Um, unless you were willing to commit to that. You had to buy the albums individually, and at the time, those albums were going for yeah thirty, forty, sometimes fifty dollars a piece. Like a, a yep. nice copy of Freak Out, the first album. Um, Since that was a two record set, dealers could be justified in, in charging fifty dollars if they had a near mint or a VG plus copy. Absolutely, yeah. and so when I was thirteen, fourteen years old, I was mm-hmm. curious about the stuff, and I liked what I'd heard here at Brass City that. Mm-hmm. The material that Walter played for me, but it was so expensive. I mean, it was a commitment to yeah. to spend that kind of money at that time. Now, to put this in perspective for our listeners, at that time, the minimum wage was still three thirty five or three fifty an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was only during the summer of eighty seven that uh, the minimum wage was raised to five dollars an hour. Mm-hmm. So uh, until on up through the summer of eighty seven. To buy one of the Verve albums, thirty dollars. That meant working nine or ten hours. Mm-hmm. Actually, a bit more with tax being taken out. You know, so if you're working a part-time job, that basically meant you had to work for a week to get a, an early Frank Zappa Verve album. Yeah, that's you know? true. So, you know, and then what? And then at the same time, those early, you know, if you're going to get an original, bizarre label pressing, blue label pressing, mm-hmm. that was going to run you probably twenty dollars. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, so and again, so that meant half a week's pay, you know. Mm-hmm. So you're really, uh, you know, that's how that's that's how much work you had to get, and that's if you could even find those albums. Mm-hmm. Many of the people who bought those albums still had them, 
you know, uh, good luck ever finding them. That's true. Uh, you really didn't. You know, we. You know, a lot of vinyl collectors are fortunate that either uh, the people who had those albums have either passed on. Um, and their wife set them out, you know, in the curb, you know, or uh, or for that matter, uh, they bought the CDs and they decided, oh, I don't need the albums anymore, and they didn't listen closely enough to the CDs to realize <laughs> the differences. So yeah, they get rid of the LPs. That, that all of a sudden, there's a little bit of flooding that all of a sudden makes some of the original vinyl somewhat uh, affordable. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's uh, but basically everyone who bought a Frank Zappa album kept them and they're going to continue to keep them and now that interest in frank has passed on to younger generations chances are you know when grandpa dies the grandkids are going to glom onto those things so yeah i don't think you're going to see that so much yeah not so much and yeah you know to even to this day to find anything and like you said to find anything in decent shape yeah i mean you know there's a folks there's a copy of roxy and elsewhere against the wall behind us here and it is um i don't know what he's got for a price tag on it 10 bucks Dollars, but let's see. But it's, it's pretty worn. I was gonna say, let's see if it has yellow discreet labels or brown reprise labels. Ah, it is. You it know, is discreet. Here, it looks pretty good. The cover's a little worn, but uh, just light surface marks, and uh, you know, yeah, not bad. Yeah. So yours for uh, paying uh, Scott Parker ten dollars <laughs> through PayPal, or shuttle his walks for the uh, winner of uh, 2015. Yeah, that'll work too. <laughs> <laughs> Although we don't get the snow that you get. Oh, that's true. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> well, we do get snow. I mean, trust me. But, you know, if we get two, three inches of snow here, it paralyzes the entire city. Now, I, I was going to say, uh, regarding other Zappa records that aren't so easy to find, mm. are those uh, uh, the two issues, Seeker Booty and uh, the two albums of Joe's Garage and Original Pressings yes. on, the re- on the Red Zappa Records label. You don't see copies of those too often. Not really, yeah. no. I mean, they're uh, particularly Joe's Garage. I mean, yeah. Sheik Your Booty, I'm surprised you don't see it more often in record stores because it's it was a decent seller. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Joe's Garage probably was a, not quite as a, a good of a seller, I guess, as, um, as Sheik Your Booty, but it was... It, it did sell copies. You're more likely to find a copy of the three LP box that came out mm-hmm. in the '80s. That's how I bought, first bought it. Yeah, you know, and it was and it has the purple barking pumpkin labels. Mm-hmm. On yeah, yeah, Frank's reissue. And uh, yeah, I'm surprised. I, I genuinely am that you you just don't see them. I think one reason with the Joe's Garage uh, albums is because. Uh, I don't know how much longer Zappa maintained that agreement with Mercury and the Zappa subsidiary logo uh, after Joe's Garage came out, because I would think that he <clears throat> he went his own way and started up Barking Pumpkin soon afterwards. So if yes. the di- distribution stage for um, uh, Joe's Garage was pretty short to begin with, mm-hmm. then not very many people would have bought it uh, to begin with. There's probably more copies that, of Joe's Garage purchased on Barking Pumpkin uh, many more probably than there were in that limited year and a half, two year span of the the Mercury deal. That's right. Before the before mm-hmm. that pressing would have become uh, would have been out of print. Yeah. So um, that's true. Actually, it's a good point because in the in the eighties, in the by the mid eighties, when I started looking into these things, it was all the box set. Mm-hmm. You couldn't find anything else. And you know, you had to buy the mail order from uh, Barf Coast Will. Mm-hmm. Hundred dollars a piece, and yeah, you know, that was a fair event. That was a pretty big investment, especially if you're in high school or college. 
Yeah. It's yeah. true. I bought the old master sets as they came mm-hmm. out. Smart. That was a smart investment. You don't see those now. Yeah. That's true. I still have my. Yeah, I still have. And my even uh, even if all of them were sold, how many sets were complete? Because I saw dealers that would uh, sell the individual albums, throw away the box and the booklet, and sell the individual albums. So how many? Complete? Walter did. Yeah. Walter, <laughs> yeah. How many complete sets are surviving now? Yeah, that's. Ch- I don't know. I haven't looked into um, how often you see one of those sets turn up on eBay. Yeah, but um, it probably isn't all that often. No, because, I mean again, people invested in them. They're going to keep them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if they if they got one set, they probably got all three. Yeah, I mean mine yeah. are. I purchased mine in what eighty seven, and it's still yeah. in pretty fairly mint shape. Yep. Considering all, probably so. what you did. You you, you played the records. Uh, and uh, recorded them to a cassette tape mm-hmm. and then wore out the cassette tape. That's what I did with my Verve and other uh, copies I bought in college and whatnot. Yeah, put them to cassette tape and then just wore out the tapes. That's yeah. it because, you yeah. know, you're, you're so worried that you're going to do something to the vinyl that, yeah. you know, uh, it was, you know, my, and even my set technically isn't complete because it came with a t shirt, which I wore oh. at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you ever see the t shirt. There, there yeah. was a t shirt. An old it said Frank Zappa the Old Masters and it said um, I got the box is what it yeah. said, and there was another T-shirt that they sold through Barfco Swill that that had the same logo that said I want the box. Uh-huh. So that was that was actually pretty. I got to get a T-shirt just to make that that uh, that work. But but yeah, I mean it was um, to get those original compact disc issues because it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I first heard the We're Only in It for the Money album. On compact discs, so that was um, the overdubbed version. Yep. And Frank had put together that he had he had laid these '80s overdubs, um, bass and drum tracks, basically on top of these '60s things because he wanted the original '60s tracks because a he didn't like the original bass and drums, right. and b he wanted people of what I guess would have been my age at the time or your age. Mm-hmm. To experience that music in a way that would appeal to them, so he thought if we made it sound more contemporary, it would sound. It and would it sound was better. indeed contemporary for Frank because that approach. You hear that approach being taken to all the songs on the uh, live uh, film late now DVD. You know the. Um, um, does humor belong in music? Yes. You know, that's yep. very much the approach that they take. You know, Chad Wackerman everywhere, you know. Oh, yeah. Either you love Chad Wackerman or you're like, you know, I'm not hearing the lewd pulsating rhythms, you know, <laughs> the original Rubens and the Jets album, you know. Yeah, well, it's true yeah. because, you know, the, and, and the same thing with the Rubens and the Jets. That's the yeah. first, the way that I heard it was yeah. with all this 80s technology thrown on, this, these 80s tracks thrown on top. But you make a good point with the, uh, we're only in it for the money because that was a hard album to find. It was mm-hmm. one that the critics all wrote about. They said, look, as, you know the first classic is we're only in it for the money you read about it, you say where can I get this album you can't get it the only way you could wind up getting it was finally it came out on CD and you could buy it yeah and I still remember the first time I ever saw Frank Sapa CDs was at a uh, again at the record sale that was at the Annapolis Armory in uh, Annapolis uh, Maryland and this one dealer had we're only in it for the money and Thingfish on CD mm-hmm. this is 1986 you know and yeah. uh, so all of a sudden well novelty the CDs. original CDs, the yeah, original the, the original CDs first. Yep. They're on first. Here are CDs, you know, <laughs> you know, and uh, and oh, and on top of that, Frank Zappa CDs at that, yeah. <laughs> and uh, 
Yeah, go figure that. Yeah, you know, well, we're only for the money. That makes perfect sense. Thingfish for a lot of people are like, huh? Yeah, but mm-hmm. you know, but there they were. You know, so those are the first two that I ever saw. So finally, you could hear this much written about album. We're only in it for the money, on CD no less. You know, uh, and of course, the original album was so rare that chance the chance of you ever hearing the original were 50-50. You know, maybe if you knew someone, you know, someone's parent who had the album. Mm-hmm. You know? But otherwise, with the overdubs, yeah, it sounded fresh, sounded contemporary. That it was any significant difference? You had no way of knowing. Yeah. No, you had no yeah. way of knowing. And I, I actually, I mean, I took to the to the album immediately because mm-hmm. it, you, you just didn't really know the difference. Yeah. So by when I, I mean, you know, I, I'm almost ashamed to say it now, but when I first heard the original album, I yeah. thought that those bass and drum tracks sounded weak by comparison. Now I yeah. get it, but at yeah. the time, you know, I mean, when you're 15, mm-hmm. you don't really, you know... You're like, you know, give me that... Yeah, give me a little more punch. Yeah, yeah. sure. Well, I mean, and uh, especially with the tape technology and recording studios uh, during the 60s, yeah, the you know, first the bass and drum tracks get uh, recorded first, then the rest of the instruments and the vocals. Well, yeah, they're gonna, the bass and drum tracks are going to get buried anyways. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other hand, there were multi... I think uh, the albums in question, uh, especially Rolling In It For The Money and Ruben and The Jets... You know, at least they were multi-track. They w- they weren't subject to the four-track, you know, bouncing technique that the Beatles had to do at Abbey Road, mm-hmm. which was why Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr had to re-record the bass and drum tracks after after everything else before the albums were released. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Frank had a little more versatility. Plus, he had all that practice with the five-track machine at PAL Studios. That's right. But even so, compared to what was '80s, even though the bass and drum tracks on the original albums were better than usual. For the time in 1967, 68, still in the 80s, yeah, you did want something that was a little punchier. That's know? true. I yeah. mean, you know, Freak Out came out on CD and mm-hmm. absolutely free, yep. and and Lumpy Gravy also yep. without those overdubs, mm-hmm. and those albums also sounded fine. But when you're used to experiencing something a certain way, yeah. and I believe that the first... I, I think the first time I heard the original Money Tracks was probably on a bootleg video that I had gotten. It just happened to be playing on this video, so it was uh, it was definitely pretty funny. But you know, we we go through in the book um, the uh, you take us through the uh, the evolution of of um, well, basically, it's kind of the evolution of Frank's vision for each individual album mm-hmm. because his. You know, certainly his idea of what an album should sound like changed over time. Yeah. And um, as as the technology became, you know, more advanced and all that sort of thing. So he, he would routinely um, sometimes uh, upset fans <laughs> by... Yeah. By changing the but but it was his prerogative. I mean, he That's could it. he could do that if he wanted to. Hey, one thing that he does say, and I think this gave him the freedom to change some of these albums. One of the last one of the things that he said in one of the last inter- interviews that he gave, uh, it's in that Zappa uh, publication that uh, guitar player and uh, keyboard jointly did. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as he was preparing for the Ensemble Modern uh, concerts, he says in one of the interviews that the mail that he was getting as of that time, okay, so 1992, uh-huh. um, the mail he was getting was not from 
Mothers of Invention fans. It was from more recent fans. He wasn't mm-hmm. getting anything from fans who bought the original Verve albums and even, say, the Bizarre albums, mm-hmm. um, you know, the first few Bizarre albums. Uh, so uh, so if, if all the feedback that he's getting from fans, at least written feedback, this is the days before the web and the Internet. So sure. what you're going to get is, you know, letters. What he's going to get is from the more recent fans who are used to the things that he had been re- uh, released in the previous 15 years. Mm-hmm. Well... For them, as well as for his own ears, that gave him the freedom to make those changes the way he did. Record the bass and drum tracks after after everything else before the albums were released. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Frank had a little more versatility. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, plus he had all that practice with the five track machine at PAL Studios. That's right. But even so, compared to what was '80s, even though the bass and drum tracks on the original albums were better than usual for the time in 1967, 68, still in the 80s, yeah, you did want something that was a little punchier. That's know? true. I yeah. mean, you know, Freak Out came out on CD and mm-hmm. absolutely free, yep. and and Lumpy Gravy also yep. without those overdubs, mm-hmm. and those albums also sounded fine, but when you're used to experiencing something a certain way, yeah. and I believe that the first... I, I th- uh, you know, NF, you know, um, and... Um, yeah, I, I think for we're only in it for the money. I wasn't so bothered by the changes to the bass and drums tracks. Mm-hmm. I think the first time I heard the original money tracks was probably on a bootleg video. Um, I was more bothered by the changes <laughs> changes he did for cruising with Ruben and the Jets. Yeah, because you have those very even uh, as he's going to be playing on this video. So it was uh, called it pulsating rhythms, but those very even um, rhythms. Uh, somewhat electronically manipulated to have that very distinctive sound mm-hmm. uh, that you were... It was definitely pretty funny, but, you know, we... I'm still not going to replicate on any 80s electronic... We go through in the book... Um, the drum set. That's true. And, uh, and the way that it was mixed, and especially with those beautiful vocals by, you know, Ray Collins and Roy Estrada and mm-hmm. all that. The, uh, t- I just kind of thought... Take us through the... Uh, that the new... The evolution of bass and drum tracks. One uh, just kind of covered over the vocals a bit. Um, the other thing that surprised of me, um, I was like, "Whoa!" Because I, uh, by the time, well, basically, it's kind of the evolution of. Frank. I heard the CD. I had the original LP. And mm-hmm. I makes vision for that very well. What threw me off guard when I heard the uh, CD each individual with the '80s changes on it. What threw me off guard was the long album mm-hmm. because his guitar solo edit, you know, sir, closing stuff up the crack. Yeah, his the cruising in the cruising uh, album that kind of threw me off guard too. So this idea of what I, you know, it was a long time before I an album should sound like changed over to bought the CD version of time. Yeah, and cruising with Ruben and the Jets. Mm-hmm. And probably and um, as more for completeness sake than anything else. That's true. It's yeah. not that that particular version of that album, yeah. as the technology became, is not one that I would normally go back to yeah. because I'm, you know, more advanced and, you know, the concept of that sort of thing. So he it's sounding like a band from that era. He, yeah. the, you know, the fifties R and B doo wop era, I guess would routinely um, is shattered when you put those sometimes those other bases uh, upset fans mm-hmm. <laughs> drum tracks on there 
Bye. Yeah. Bye, Ching. But but it was his prerogative. I mean, he That's could it. he could do that if he wanted. Hey, one thing that he does say, and I think this gave him the freedom. change some of the these albums one of the last one of the things that he said in one of the last take my heart in your interviews that he gave my love my everything uh, it's in that Zappa uh, publication that uh, gets for so long jointly did uh, mm-hmm. You know, as he was preparing for the Ensemble Modern. Concerts. He says in one of the interviews that the mail that he was getting as of that time, okay, so... Uh, the mail he was getting was not from Mothers of Invention fans. It was from more recent fans. He wasn't mm-hmm. getting anything from fans who bought the original Verve albums and even say the. Our albums, mm-hmm. um, you know, the first few business. Our albums, uh, so. Uh, so if if all the feedback that he's getting from fans, at least written feedback. This is the days before the web and the internet. So sure. what you're going to get. That is, you know, letters. What he's going to get it is from the more recent thing. Fans who are used to things that he had been re- uh, released in the previous 15 years. Mm-hmm. Well, for them, as well as for his own ears, that get. Give him the freedom to make those changes the way he did. Take my heart. You know, NF, you know, um, and. Um, yeah, I, I think for we're only in it for the money. I wasn't. bothered by the changes to the base drums tracks mm-hmm. um, 
I was more bothered by the changes he did for cruising with Ruben and the Jets. Yeah. Because you have... Those very even... Uh, as he... Whereas I'm not... Whereas the new tracks weren't so... Uh, called it pulsating rhythms but those very yeah they 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 the rhythms uh somewhat didn't disturb me so much in fact i rather liked them on the electronically manipulated to have that very distinctive sound mm -hmm. remake for we're only in it for the mm -hmm. money that that, that 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 was fine yeah you heard the overdubbed lumpy lumpy uh that you're still not going to replicate uh, Gravy, yeah of because i as part of the lumpy money set mm -hmm. you know it's as well that frank uh, didn't release that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think you're right. <laughs> Any '80s electronic drum set. That's true. And, it was talked out of releasing, and uh, and the way that it was mixed, and especially with those that one. And I I uh, uh, beautiful vocals by you know Ray Collins and Roy Estrada and uh -huh. all that. Um, I tend to agree with that because uh, yeah, that uh, no, not so much on that one. It wasn't <laughs> just the instrumental. I just kind of thought that. The new dubs. It was also some of the vocal overlays, especially to the opening section that he retitled Duodenum. Mm -hmm. And here, I think it's Ike Willis, you know, do bass and drum tracks. One, uh, just kind of covered over the vocals a bit. Yeah, the thing fish. Uh, um, the other thing that surprised me, I was like, whoa, because I, uh, by the time, uh, yeah. The, those thing fish references yeah. that are in there. And I heard the CD, I had. It's interesting. Original LP. Thing. Yeah. You know, but uh, it's definitely not the way I would have liked to have first experienced that album knowing what no, I know now. No, You know, so I'm, I'm kind of glad that didn't happen. <laughs> now, it's interesting because here we are talking about the remit, you know, the overdubs versus the originals and all that. And I think in view of that, uh, one feature of Zaftig is our ratings. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you started out with the first 30 or so albums, and I... Kind of took it. I agreed with everything that you rated, mm -hmm. and then I we, we kind of worked on the remaining ones together. And uh, yeah, the um, you know in uh, you know by and large we pretty much agreed on how each album could be rated. Mm -hmm. Now one thing is um, for anyone who doesn't yet have Zaftig and they're waiting for either you know Christmas or Easter to get it as a gift, you mm -hmm. know, depending on when they hear this podcast. Uh, but um, the thing uh, with the Zaftig, in addition to listing each of the we list each of the CDs, and we uh, include both the originals and the remakes. Mm -hmm. But we do it according to CD. So, what the Zap and we follow the Zappa family order. So, mm -hmm. number five, let's say for example, is no number five or number six is going to be cruising with Ruben and the Jets. We're going to cite the 1986-87 uh, CD version that Frank prepared. Right. When we get talking about the original version. We would that we would discuss it as part of the greasy love song set, mm -hmm. which would be up in the nineties. That's right. You know, and same thing with we're uh, uh, actually with we're only we're only in it for the money. You know what? I'm trying to remember it for the Zaptig if we covered if we did the I think we what we did because the Zappa family reissued the 1968 mix, and that's what we have as number four, or number three or four. Mm -hmm. But then we cover the remix version, I think as part of the one of the later sets, maybe Lumpy Money or something like that. Yeah, because it is yeah. on Lumpy Money, of yeah. course. So uh, maybe that's how we covered that. So so we're actually pretty even-handed and fair 
you know, as much as we might seem to be uh, talking trash about the remakes, actually, we're pretty fair about them, even how we discuss and then also rate them, too. We give them pretty high ratings. Yeah, I um, mean, I still think that the um, that the uh, the remake, or the, the overdubbed version of only money sounds yeah. sounds great and is a valid alternative version of that album, um, and I've never really felt that strongly about the the uh, overdubbed version of Ruben, even yeah. though that was the first that was the way I heard that album mm-hmm. first because I heard it in the old Masters box that one. Yeah. So that, but yeah, our ratings do tend to be pretty fair. I mean, we're not um, necessarily. Um, not everything is five stars, but... No, no. but, uh, right. you know, I have to say this much, and this says a lot for Frank's career, you know, because there was a period of time in the 80s where I thought, you know, this isn't up to snuff. I mean, even taking into account changing styles and, and fashions and how he has to adapt, even taking that into account, I didn't think some of the albums in the 80s were at the same level as what he was doing in the 60s and 70s. And so for me... One of the happy circumstances with Frank's legacy is how strong the last albums were in his lifetime, mm-hmm. especially the Yellow Shark yep. and Civilization Phase Three, which mm-hmm. I think we did give our, our highest ratings to. I might be That's wrong, right. but it was one where we gave the higher point, you know, ratings that were comparable to uh, uh, the Verve and the Bizarre era stuff, you know, the sixties and seventies stuff. And thank goodness for that. And, but I remember when those albums came out and I listened to them, I was like. Okay, thank goodness, firing on all pistons. He's got the best people, the mm-hmm. best arrangers, best assistants to make sure everything was scored right, sounded right. And, and of course, especially uh, his working with the Ensemble Mondaren really helped out a lot. You know, gave him a lot of spirit, you know, to boot. So there was nothing being done by rote off paper on that. That's, as Frank would put it, that, that music uh, has the eyebrows on it. That's and right. Thank goodness for that. And I think we reflected that in... in but you're right, though. You go through, and I think those last albums are like numbers like 61, 62, 63. But yeah, when you're looking at the albums that are like, that we numbered, say, 45 through the upper 50s, you know, it was, I think we, that's where we tend to give our middling uh, ratings to on that one. Spotty. I mean, I, I actually think, I mean, you know, one of one of my least favorite albums is probably The Man from Utopia, simply because there are some great moments on it, but as a totality, it, yeah. I find it to be a very spotty album. Yeah. You know, like a song like uh, uh, Sex, yeah. really, is kind of phoned in, yeah. you know, to yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I have to admit, um, you, know, uh, you know, what I know the album for, in a good way, mm-hmm. is... The Dangerous Kitchen. Yep, of course. And Jazz Discharge Party Hats. That's right. You know, the Meltdowns, as he called them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those are enormous fun to listen to, but also, you know what, they're harder to perform than they sound like, you know. Sure. Uh, But, you know, here's one for you is, uh, you know, we were listening to uh, an anthology that uh, included We Are Not Alone, and I'm going, which album is that from? You know, We Are Not Alone. It turned out that was from uh, The Man from Utopia. Yep. But it's not one that I think of when I th- when I think of songs from that album. That's yeah. true. Yeah. I mean, I think it was kind of, you know, an album that he just sort of put out there. I mean, yeah. Them or Us was better. Um, probably would have made a fantastically great single album. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, yes, I'm using the Beatles White Album argument there. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> that's although I use. bought it when not long after it came out, and I I enjoyed it then. Yeah. You oh, know, I definitely yeah. enjoyed it. Was then. it Uncle Meat? No, it's not going to be. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be mistaken for Uncle Meat. You know? No, that's true. And I do. You know, I I don't really. I mean. I I guess that some of my favorite stuff is the stuff from the Verve and and the Bizarre Reprise mm-hmm. years because those were um, the first albums I heard so mm-hmm. so they were uh, the albums that changed my life as yeah. as you might say but but um, but they were uh, you couldn't really expect I guess over the course of a long career you can't expect anybody to maintain that same level of quality. No. In fact, I can't. I can't think of anybody who who really did that over the long haul. You'd have to go not in rock, you know, <clears throat> not in rock. In, no. in jazz, you could look at say Duke Ellington or Sun Ra. Oh, sure, absolutely. But, you know, uh, but they were like Frank in that they hired and maintained bands over a long period of time, and they uh, each of them, especially Ellington, considered themselves composers who happened to play. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, but in rock, not not, not on this level, not like that. No, absolutely not. A dangerous kitchen If it ain't one thing, it's another In the middle of the night when you get home The bread things are all dry and scratchy The meat things where the cats ate through the paper The canned things with the sharp little edges They can cut your fingers when you're not looking The soft little things on the floor that you step on they can all be dangerous Sometimes the milk can hurt you If you put it on your cereal Before you smell the plastic container And the stuff in the strainer Has a mind of its own So be very careful In the dangerous kitchen when the nighttime has fallen and the roaches are crawling in the kitchen of danger, you can feel like a stranger. The bananas are black, they got flies in the back, and also the chicken in the dish with the foil where the cream is all clabbered. And the salad is frightful Your return in the evening Can be less than delightful You must walk very careful You must not lean against it It can get on your clothing It can follow you in As you walk to the bedroom And you take all your clothes off While you're sleeping it crawls off it gets in your bed It could get on your face then It could eat your complexion You could die from the danger Of the dangerous kitchen Who the fuck wants to clean it? It's disgusting and dirty The sponge on the drainer Is stinky and squirty if you squeeze it when you wipe up What you get on your hands then Could unbalance your glands and Make you blind or whatever 
among our ratings, and it's almost unique, uh, we had to give a double rating for Thingfish. Yes. You know, and it's still, it's, you could either call it the Great Lost or the Great Forgotten Frank Zappa album or the the, the Frank Zappa album that should be most forgotten. You know, it's it's either one extreme or, the, uh, or another on how people feel about it. Mm-hmm. You know? And at the time that it came out, I, and what I bought when it came out was the LPs. I didn't buy it on CD, mm-hmm. even though I was seeing it here and there. I didn't have a CD player at the time, mm-hmm. so uh, so I bought an LP uh, and three record set. You know, and of course, yeah, it was. You could have fit it onto two LPs, but it's clear that it was mastered so you could, you know, play it at loud volume. Sure. But when most of the album is all dialogue. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's not exactly an album that you feel like blaring through the windows, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but, uh, but I remember when I first bought it and I realized how much, in terms of melody or arrangements, that were you had heard on previous albums, especially uh, uh, No Not Now on Ship Arriving, Too Late to Save a Drowning Witch was mm-hmm. one example. And there were some other ones where you go, well, this is kind of rehashing of this and that. And... Um, you know, it kind of threw me for a loop. I also sort of expected something more like Joe's Garage. Yes. And it, Thingfish is definitely not uh, Joe's Garage. It's definitely really a two-hour confrontation, you know, mm-hmm. between classes, cultures, races, uh, something to offend everyone in it. Yes. And uh, <laughs> so, um, so as a result, that kind of caught me a little off guard. And uh, so for a long time, uh, it just stayed on the shelf with my other albums. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, Recently, someone I'd heard, it was a few years ago, it was someone who was new to the Zappa uh, herb. Uh, it was listening through the albums. Didn't, didn't matter as to when certain albums came out, that some albums came out before others. And, uh, but this uh, friend was raving about Thingfish and mm-hmm. in ways that made me realize, you know, let's listen to it, to it in a different way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I listened to it, I'm going, you know, there's something else going on with this uh, that deserves... A, a reconsideration, and so I had, um, you know, so I was perfectly fine in giving it both our lowest and highest ratings, mm-hmm. you know, because of that. Um, and I think one another reason that I confirmed my five stars for it was, you know, there were a couple bits that yeah, Frank did make use of uh, of live tracks, you know, as backing tracks, mm-hmm. uh, but most of it. For, uh, or a great deal of it was recorded in the studio at a time when he was using the studio a lot less. But here he's using this album, uh, recording most of this album in the studio. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're going, okay, considering that it's a lot cheaper for Frank to do this in concert, but here he is doing it in the studio, You know, uh, maybe there's something to this that deserves a little more... And it, a listening investment equal to what Frank put in as a financial yes. investment. And I'm like, you know what? That confirms our, uh, you know, giving it five stars, you know, uh, at the same, you know. That's it, because I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Thinkfish may be the last time that he used the studio to that extent to create an album that was not uh, Sinclair-based, yeah. you know, that that was not. Because really, I think, was it uh, the next album after that was uh, Broadway the Hard Way? 
Yep. And all new material. Well, uh, there was, um, I'm sorry, there was uh, Mothers of Prevention also. That's but right. that had yeah. live tracks in it, too. Well, it depends on which album you got. Uh, That's true. Because I actually, at the time, I got both the live and the, um, uh, both the uh, American and the European versions. Mm-hmm. I, I, there was a record store in Rochester, New York, that had them, and I just I just made sure to grab both. Sure. But yeah, you have to get the European version if you're going to get Porn Wars. Mm-hmm. You know that's a that's a mid mid decade masterwork. By yeah. Frank. But other than that, though, you're right. Though uh, that's the only exception that you could say. You know, with that amount of studio work into it. Mm-hmm. The thing, fish, uh, to get into the work itself. As I described it earlier, there's something to, uh, uh, there's something to offend everyone. I mean, the whole oh, yeah. premise, it's a, you know, of course, Frank would have liked to have staged it as a Broadway show, so it would have been a Broadway show within a Broadway show. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you have this, you know, what's meant to be a stage show mm-hmm. uh, with, uh, you know, Thingfish, you know, uh, and the uh, other mammies, you know, mm-hmm. which are... You know, African Americans affected by you know government programs mm-hmm. that you know end up growing you know you know potato like heads and these other orifices. You Looks know. like a duck. And yeah, and uh, <laughs> and uh, here they are presenting this show that's par- that's a parody of what mainstream culture uh, expected of African American entertainment to be, mm-hmm. and then at the same time, and, and of course. The lead character, Thingfish, based on Kingfish from the Amos and Andy show. Uh-huh. And, of course, Thingfish is speaking in that kind of stylized di- dialect that is, you know, done to with aplomb by Ike Willis. I mean, yes. it's one of the greatest, you know, uh, uh, vocal <laughs> efforts on any Zappa album. But you have, through this lead, the title character, Thingfish, a confrontation for what what uh, political and social issues were being brought to bear on mm-hmm. African Americans at the time. Meanwhile, at another level of the stage, you have this young white couple, mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah, they're thinking, you know, this is going to be on, on par with Dream Girls. Mm-hmm. At least I was realistic <laughs> in listening to the album that it was going to be like Joe's Garage. They're even more deluded. Yeah. They think it's going to be Dream Girls. You know, and you know they're perfectly, you know, specialists in you know wholesome entertainment or whatever the, the specific line is. And it's anything but, and, uh, yes. and anything but, and it's, and of course everyone comes in for humiliation. The young white couple comes in for humiliation. Well, Thinkfish and the fellow Mammy nuns, they can't be humiliated anymore. They're at the outset, you know, they're with what's been done to them by the government. They're not any, you know, they're pulling everyone else down. Sure. And in fact, it's not just white people that come in; it's everything else. In fact, the show is supposed to end with everyone. In a conga dance, so mm-hmm. you're making fun of Latin American yeah. or Caribbean <laughs> entertainment, you know, which was you know during the 50s and 60s was calypso, mm-hmm. That's you know. Right. So you got that going on. So everything goes into the dumpster, you know, mm-hmm. so to speak. And uh, so, um, and you go. And at the time when I first heard it in the 1980s, I thought, well, I I can understand killing every sacred cow, but which sacred cows? I didn't really realize it then because I was a college student and just wasn't really aware of things but in hindsight you know I recognize recognize now the rise of multiculturalism Mm -hmm. and how certain um, artifacts or for that matter music from individual cultures are presented to other people especially to those in mainstream America Mm -hmm. and and this is where I think something I brought in reconsidering Thingfish was 
my years as um, a blues archivist at the University of Mississippi. Ah, uh, yes. And I would receive visitors to the archive, some of them for research, but some of them would also come in for uh, advice or, hey, I got something, can you read it as an expert reader? What, tell me what you think of it. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, there were a number of projects that people brought, well-meaning, they were earnest, nice people, earnest, everything else, and yet it wasn't much different than Thingfish. Yeah, you get right sure. down to it. They say, well, we want to show young people where the roots of everything is. Well, that's fine, but do you have to have it presented by an African-American talking like, well, Thingfish? Yeah. You know, you know and, <laughs> and why, and, 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 and many of these presentations were the presentation or packaging mm-hmm. of African-American culture and music um, presented by, it's always by an older black man, never an older uh, black woman, mm-hmm. or for that matter, someone from another background or culture. And it's always being presented to a young couple, always a young couple, mm-hmm. and it's always a young white couple. And I'm going, huh. I can't figure this out. You yeah. know, Why is it always the same? You could have different kinds of people uh, depicted in this presentation. Sure. Why is it always this? And so um, with that kind of trend almost uh, in what are otherwise well-meaning attempts to present different cultures, you wind up with something that isn't too far removed from Thingfish. Yeah, from the... Uh, it's it's a grand social comment that Frank made that probably, is, if anything, it was about 15 to 20 years ahead of its time. Galoo, galoo. Galoo, galoo. Galoo, galoo. You kill a Kavagna. Galoo, galoo. Galoo, galoo. Galoo, galoo. The killer Kalagna. That's right. The killer Kalagna. That's right. Well, the government didn't find out right away about the Mammy Now. That's right. The Mammy Now. Well, they's too damn excited about the sissies they was knocking off. And working up an uncreatable variety of theoretical scenarios to explain away how come their fagnets all be croaking at the same time in the month of November. Freaking of tainted collagenum. They booked in their heavy pseudo religious talent to pronunciate the doctrine of biblical retribution. Moving the project forward. Figuring that to be. Show fire exclamation suitable for domestic assuagement. Naturally, a substantial number of severely ignorant white folks went for it, hook, line, and shrinker. By that time, the mammy nuns had already sprouted them tater heads and was in the process of growing out the knackens. Also, by a peculiar coincidence, we's all up for parole at the same time. That's right, you figured out. Once we was out the joint, we faced a hard time in the depression. Couldn't get no assembly line wick, and since the naggins we's wearing actually be growing out our bodies, we was labeled as overqualified for janitorical deployment. 
onlyest good thing about being a mammy nun is we be more less undestructible. Whatever they done whipped up before, don't do shit to us now. Back, we just might be the onlyest things left walking in the USA. Now the mystery disease gone out of control, just like you. I see some of y'all be frowning, cause maybe you think what I's telling you is a lie. How about it, folks? What you say? Is that right? Yes, it sure is. Well, let's just have a test. How many of you nice folks think I knows what I's talking about? Raise your hand up. Uh-huh. And how many thinks my potato been baking too long? Raise your miserable hand up. Uh-huh. Now, how many of you folks is convinced the government be totally unconcerned with the proliferation of undesirable tenants in the condominium of life? And how many folks believe they number won't come up next time the breeze blow from the easterly direction? Let's face it, peepers, ugly as I might be, I am your future. Lest y'all prefer permanent storage or a condo in Atlantis. They can really get down there, but I is the only protection you got. Now, during the intermission, the sisters be selling some mashed potatoes in the lobby, right over by the... In the vicinity of the... Neat the planet of the big old giant. A generous goodwill offering are required. Just let your conscience be your guide. Just follow the blue light down the aisle to the potatoes during the intermission. Y'all be thinking about the blue light and y'all be deciding whether or not your immunity wine hold up to the end of the show. I was about to address myself to the re-educatement of them silly motherfuckers over there. You can't even speak your own fucking language. What on earth do you mean my language? I got your language hanging, boy. Long with a two-week supply of ignorant McNugget. The breakfast of champions. Don't let your meat loaf. Huh? Kiss my McNugget. Kiss my micro nanette too. Don't forget the galoot. Galoot Galagnum. Yeah, very misunderstood work. Yeah. Um, Nigel Lennon, who who you may know, is that's right. She wrote the book uh, "Being Frank." Being Frank, yeah. she described it to me as uh, two hours of pure hatred for everyone and everything. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it's a very apt um, description of mm-hmm. it. Yeah, there's nothing you know. Um, there's hatred all the all the way around. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and yet somehow. There's nothing chaotic or slipshod in the composition, recording, and presentation of, That's that, right. of that work. You know, 
I could never see it being a stage uh, musical. You know? No, <laughs> I could never. I, I I I don't even know if it could work as a film unless you could do an animation of it. Mm-hmm. But then, even if you could do it as a film version, a two-hour film, my God, what what rating could you give it? You <sighs> couldn't give it a and. And you see. couldn't probably, I mean, you know, if you could even film the briefcase boogie, what could you possibly do with that, you know? I know, I think you have to switch to a Bruce Bickford animation. Yeah, you would absolutely it. have yeah. to. Yeah. You could get Bruce to do it, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but that would be, I mean, it's just, I actually really um, love Thing Fish because you have, you have to understand, you know, I'm, people forget this, but... When Frank and I'm sure you you guys know that when when Frank was a kid, mm-hmm. his introduction to African American culture was through those blues and R and B records. Mm-hmm. So he was getting a a voice that would have been, um, you know, considerably different than anybody that he would have. And at the, and during those same years, the television version of Amos and Andy was on. Was being aired. Mm-hmm. That's now right. you now you almost never see reruns of them, uh, in part because, uh, well, one the the show was pulled off the air in part due to uh, activism from the NAACP mm-hmm. uh, for that time, and uh, and it was, uh, but at the same time, yeah, especially it was early television, so it's not on you know videotape. It's not like the electronic cam system, like you know, you yeah, have, sure. uh, that like the honeymooners was uh, used. Or for that matter, what Desi Lou, what uh, Desi and Ar- Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball used for "I Love Lucy" to mm-hmm. get those marvelous reruns that we have. Yeah, uh, I did happen to see uh, a a, te- a telecast on Maryland Public Television of Amos and Andy TV shows, and it's you know what they were, how they were saved was very crude. But at that time, in the early to mid '50s, they're being aired as ne- on network television, mm-hmm. and. Um, and of course, the standout character on that uh, show wasn't Amos or Andy. It was Think- it was yeah, Kingfish. It was Kingfish. Yeah, he's That's the right. most interesting character in the whole show. And you know, and of course, at the same time, he is—I don't want to say the embodiment, but he takes to extremes every stereotype <laughs> uh, that mainstream American mainstream America had for African Americans. That's right. It was only right that the NCAACP did put pressure to bear to have, if not the show pulled from network TV, then not to have the reruns done. Yeah. You know, uh, so it's you know, it's one less thing. But as part of Frank's upbringing, yeah, you have that show on network TV, so to give him something that was more representative of African American culture, it would have to be those R&B records that he bought. Mm-hmm. You know, records that were made by black American uh, musicians for black American listeners and buyers and dancers. Uh, that that would be the only thing, you know, that would really, you know, could erase that, you know, or, or it would be something that would be preferable to what was being depicted on TV. Yeah, I mean, know? you know, addressing, you know, African American concerns at that time. Yeah. Know? I mean, it just... Um, so you have to figure all this stuff is sort of stewing in his in his brain, and of course, yeah. you know, later he did get um, uh, some, you know, kind of, you know, some some guys in the band like um, Napoleon Murphy Brock and mm-hmm. George Duke, and they brought with them yeah. their culture and their their um, their way of communicating with each other and all that stuff, and yeah. all that stuff gets put into the mix. I mean, obviously, Frank had done a lot with that 
um, parody, parodying that sort of language mm-hmm. for years prior to um, Thingfish, which you could see is his ultimate parody work. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe even more so than something like We're Only In It For The Money, I think that yeah. Thingfish is just complete parody from top to bottom. Yeah, at least with We're Only In It For The Money, there is that, you know, two songs that have the flashback to his childhood, you know, Kenny and Ronnie. That's right. You know, uh, so you have, you know, starting out with uh, Let's let's Make The Water Turn Black, and it continues into, if at a different mood and tempo, Idiot Bastard Son, but at mm-hmm. least you have a little bit of that hindsight. You don't have anything like that uh, in Thingfish. It's completely and utterly in the dramatic present. That's it. You know? And it's there's no escaping. There's no refuge in the past. No. You know? I mean, it's very... It's definitely, as you said before, it's confrontational. It's in yeah. your face. Yeah. I mean, you can't... There's no way... It's it's. I think it was designed to be an album that you either loved or you hated. Yeah. And, um, of course, far more people hated it, but... Um, even in one of his last interviews, or his last major interview that he yeah. did um, for the uh, Negative Dialectics of Poodle Play, yeah, uh, Ben Watson with Ben play. Watson, yeah. um, when they were going through um, these these pieces that Watson had written about the various albums, and um, Frank wanted to know Watson's interpretations of the albums. Yeah. First album he asked him to do was Thingfish, yeah. And so that was that. That in itself was a confrontation. You know, mm-hmm. that was him confronting Watson. Yeah. You know, give me. You know, give me your analysis of this album, and it better be. You know, you better have gotten it by yeah. that time. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, a lot of people didn't get it, and I'm sure even less people would get it. Yeah. You know, even less folks out there would get it now. No, but um, it's not. If if one is listening to this and they're thinking. Yeah, I should get Frank Zappa's music, you know. Sooner or later, one should get Thingfish, but it should not be the first Frank Zappa album to buy. No. (laughs) (laughs) Don't start there. Yeah, yeah, buy Freak Out. Buy the first volume of You Can't Do That on Stage Anymore. Mm -hmm. But for Thingfish, you can wait a little while. You can wait, yeah, you can definitely, uh, you can definitely wait a while on that. Wait a minute. What? What wickedness is this? The way you're staring on. I just did me. I'll be clutching. Have been left out on the lawn. Your daddy wasn't negligible. Your mama wasn't inflatable. Your trauma to the infant. But mostly not negatable. Something spoken, something born. 
my day job is as a librarian mm-hmm. you know, overseeing a music library and uh, so yeah when I acquired finally got around to buying my copy of Everything is Healing Nicely yeah of course I recognized that track you know mm-hmm. but I also saw I recognized it for what it was uh, as a prototype for the uh, I forget the now I'm forgetting the exact uh, title on the Yellow so Shark Welcome to the United States it's something like that yeah mm-hmm. But it's the entry form for coming, you know, for travelers and tourists coming to the United States. And for me, that was one of the, well, one of the great tracks on what was a, a great album, the last, you know, one of the last masterworks that Frank did. And uh, yeah, library card is fun to listen to for me because that's that's my yeah. job. You know? <laughs> but yeah, it's just uh, you know, funny how little things, you know, they're just little tiny things can just be rubbed and become a hard diamond artifact by an artist like Frank. Yeah. That's true, the way yeah. that he could... Um, it It's fascinating because he he knew to pick the, the perfect person yeah. to to read these these <laughs> forms, too. Well, you can't go wrong with a German accent. You know, remember... Uh, That's true. You know, did you get any on you? The, the yeah. The weasels yep. ripped my flesh. You know, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, George, he oh, yeah. did his uh, German customs uh, yeah. <laughs> officer guy, yeah. you know, the ger- the whole German lunch piece and all that stuff. Indeed. That's true. Frank was a big fan of the German accent, <laughs> I think. <laughs> well, uh, on Joe's Garage Act, too. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's right. That's right. I think, you know, it's, it's brilliant because if you think about what Frank could have done with the Ensemble Moderne, yeah. um, had he lived, it's it's pretty interesting because they were really, if you think about it, they were only really getting to know each other at mm-hmm. that point. You know, the uh, they did, of course, the Verez album, which hasn't come out. Yeah, I, uh, I well, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, do you think we'll see it, or, uh, or uh, it won't be long? Could I be- don't know actually, because the the last I had heard, I think this is true. It was being held up in a in a rights dispute with um, with the Verez estate. Well, not even with um, uh, what was this? Rudy Dolezal, the the guy who there was a, a film crew 
that came and filmed some of the sessions. Okay. And my understanding of it is that um, they wanted to do it as a CD and and perhaps a DVD. There we go. And they couldn't get, Mm. they couldn't reach an agreement with um, Dolezal. I can't remember what they... What the film company is called? I think it's like the Torpedo Twins or something like that. Well, if worst comes to worst, at least we get an audio only. Uh, we could get a CD only of it. That's it. Yeah, and I would love to hear Frank's arrangements and interpretations of those pieces. Oh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the now they what must was be it? Because he, uh, if I recall correctly, from accounts including what was in the Zappa uh, special issue that guitar player and keyboard did. It was mixed for five speakers. Is that what was being played? It was being played through five speakers. It wasn't just your normal two speakers, right? It was. Yeah. It was to be played. If it wasn't five point one audio, then it was Frank's prototype for it. Basically, know? yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it would it would make a remarkable, you know, five point one mix yeah. uh, project. I don't know whether there would be, you know, they that they would want to do it that way, but yeah. you know, that was certainly Frank's intention. Sure. Yeah, he was uh, he was definitely always at the forefront of of um, you know sort of what you could do with mixing and mm-hmm. all that sort of thing. So I'm really hoping. Did you you have Quadiophiliac, um, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I managed to get that and the Halloween uh, you know DVD audio. Uh, yeah, and I'm glad to get those because I don't know if there's any uh, you know plans to reissue them on CD or not. I don't think so. I don't think so either. No. I mean, they are designed as DVD audio projects. That's it, yeah. So I think um, since DVD audio is largely a dead format, I mean, it's not completely, but... um, So anyone who's a newcomer to Frank and they're wanting to get the music, they're going to have to bite the bullet uh, and pay what needs to be, whether from a used dealer or Amazon third-party vendor, they might have to pay... uh, Bite the bullet and, and shell out some money for that. That's it. I wouldn't say three hundred dollars, but you know, no. <laughs> maybe you know forty or fifty dollars. I could see that. Yeah, I could see yeah. that easily. And then you have to either. I, I think you have to, in order to experience it the way it was intended to be experienced, you have yeah. to, of course, have a surround sound system, yeah. or um, or five point one system, and uh, or you. I think you can do a two channel. Down mix just from your DVD player on those titles. That's it. Yeah, it's been a, I, the only times I played my copies. I brought them to a friend of mine who has a nice high end uh, video system, mm-hmm. and we played them through there. And I, yeah, he definitely doesn't have five point one. I don't. It's not mm. that high high end. Yeah, but even through his conventional uh, stereo speaker setup, uh, yeah, played perfectly fine. Yeah, it sounded sounded good to me. You know. So. Well, that's it. I mean, you know. A number of those, there are titles in the in the catalog that are just not, I don't think, going to be reissued yeah. by anybody. Yeah. And um, uh, unless I'm very much mistaken, and, and maybe somebody can correct me, I think that those titles would be two yeah. uh, pieces that are just not going, you're just not going to see out no. there again. Yeah. And um, although... Uh, my understanding is that some of the albums like um, like Buffalo and right. some of the mail order titles yeah. will be available through Universal. Okay. So they're going to get some of those titles. I could be wrong about that. I'm pretty sure I've heard that recently. Okay. And uh, so those, so you'll be able to get those without spending 
a fortune, right? Which mm-hmm. in some cases is what you have to do mm-hmm. in order yeah. to get some of those older albums. But um, uh, mail order at at Barf Coast Will is going to continue, so there will still yeah. be uh, mail order only albums, right? But I guess under the new uh, deal with Universal, a lot of new product is going to come out through them. Okay, well, which means good. more mainstream distribution. Yeah, well, that's good. And then that way, with the new albums, there'll be higher initial sales, and they'll kind of keep things going. Let's hope. You know? Yeah. So, but yeah, um, yeah. I mean, when you get you know when your catalog is at a hundred CDs, and there's still more <laughs> forthcoming. Yeah, there's going to be bound to be a few. Yeah. Oh, there's quite a few projects I think that that um, are either that we know of that are either finished or right. are going to uh, are are projects that they are looking to release. So, you know, we're I'm just looking forward to see what seeing what the future holds. Yeah. Thank you. 
liable for any unauthorized use of this card prior to notifying the US card office in writing of possible unauthorized use due to loss or theft. I agree to comply with all library regulations and to assume responsibility for all use made of this card. Guckst du mal, wie du weiterkommen kannst. Oder? Meinst Ja, ja, ja. ja. Entscheidend. Ja. Gehst du mal rüber? Siehst du den Hügel da? Wo? Ja. Okay. Ja. Der mit der Sonne drauf. Ach, geschmarrt. Ja, das ist Osram. 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 Ja. Ja, das ist er. Genau, dann gehst du da entlang, guckst du und dann kommst du wieder zurück.
one thing I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. I'm taking you through various, <laughs> just uh, various eras mm-hmm. of Frank's music and just yeah. getting your your thoughts. Sure. As much as I can. And I wanted to start with the Vaudeville band. Yeah. Flo and the Eddie. Flo and Eddie band. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, Fillmore East, June 1971, that was the first Frank Zappa album I heard all the way through. That's right. It was pretty extreme, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I loved it to death, but... Uh, or a teenage boy, yeah, yeah. that's, a, that's a definitely an extreme album. Yeah, because I was like 19, <laughs> yeah, so a yeah. sophomore in college, you know. And uh, But yeah, I don't know what got me more, more the uh, that incredible two-part guitar solo you know, on Willie the Pimp, mm-hmm. uh, especially part two, just you know, unbelievable. Um you know, just how he's just going, to t- just going at it. You know, um, and uh, it's still for me one of the most intense guitar solos by anyone. You mm-hmm. know? And you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, I love Jimmy Page. You know, yeah, uh, Adrian Ballou. You know, you know, pay my respects to Ingve Malmsteen. You know, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, Willie the Pimp Part Two. Holy cow, that's just you know, that's just gritty, dirty, intense. Just mm-hmm. everything that you want from a, a rock guitar solo. You know. But then, on the other hand, the, the the vaudeville bit that you know, do you like my new car? Yeah, yeah, you know, it's just that's just totally insane, but uh, for a different reason. You sure, know? you have you know two men, you know, um, you know, uh, Mark Bowman, ha- Howard Kalen, mm-hmm. one playing a rock star, the other playing a female groupie, mm-hmm. but they're just doing it without any condescension or caricature. They're yep. just doing it totally straight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and all this whole. Inter- you know, exchange between a rock star and a groupie, you know, um, you know, before the uh, you know, you know, hit single with a bullet comes, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know, you just go, holy cow, you know, uh, this isn't what you know, this isn't what most rock groups were doing at the time, mm-hmm. or even thought of doing, you know, uh, at least not on stage. Yeah, you know? sure. No, Slice of life. Doing, yeah, you know, it really was. Life. Yeah, especially as as Frank invokes at the beginning of Fillmore East. Uh, Taking place at the Edgewater Inn, you know, That's right. and uh, uh, so uh, no, I just thought of it as you know hugely entertaining, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and that's what it was. If I wanted art from Frank Zappa, I go to what the rock record critics were talking about, you know, the Verve albums and Uncle Me and Hot Rats, you know, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, this was a you know Fillmore East, or for that matter, uh, um, just another band from L.A. You know, it's just meant to be entertainment, or at least the entertainment part of what was to be a full evening's uh, show mm-hmm. for uh, for a paying audience. So, uh, you, you know, some of, a, a few members of which want to go up backstage and set up deals with various members of Zappa's mothers. That's so, right. <laughs> you know, it, it's, you got that kind of appeal going on. Uh, no, I don't. I don't view them with any sort of. Uh, Condescension or um, disparagement or anything like that—they're they're fun albums to listen to. Yeah, I know um, uh, Walter, whose store we're still in right now, folks. Right? Um, he was not a fan of that stuff because mm-hmm. of that material. Because, right. but he had also come from the original Mother's era, so he was expecting, yeah, you know, something else, you know. Yeah. And he and he wasn't—he didn't necessarily like the um, um, the the comedy aspect of that right. you know it's it became more in his eyes it became more yeah. a sort of comedy band it's, as it did for Jeff Simmons too I guess yeah <laughs>
Oh, I know. And uh, I got to ask something about Jeff Simmons. Yeah. I've always wondered about this, and maybe you might know one way or the other. Mm. You know, I think generally speaking, you know, to review Jeff Simmons' career with the band, he starts playing with Frank as early as what seventy on nineteen seventy seventy for the uh, Chungo's Revenge album, mm-hmm. and then with the touring band in seventy one, he leaves just right when Two Hundred Motels is beginning filming in London. Mm-hmm. And now, normally, anyone else who does that, you know, <laughs> Frank's like, "Fine, I'll see you later. You have a good life." Yeah, kind of thing. Very seldom do you ever have. Uh, if anyone else other than Simmons able to rejoin the band. But yeah. Simmons rejoins a, a couple years later. Mm-hmm. And I've always wondered, was it always because Frank always had a soft spot for Jeff? Or was there, uh, or was he stuck uh, with, or did he need not just a bass player at a particular time, but a Jeff Simmons style Jeff bass player and who better than Jeff Simmons? I was just never, I could never figure that out. You know, I think uh, I think it was more that he had a soft spot for him. Yeah. Because when he rejoined the band, it was, of course, as a guitar player. Okay. So, um, and Jeff did actually. He he came back fairly quickly. He played. I didn't. I believe he played the Hawaiian guitar part on. Um, it just might be a one shot deal. Oh. From okay. Waka Jawaka, if I remember that right. All right. Um. So they must have kept in sort touch. of in touch. Yeah. And perhaps after the incident at the Rainbow when Frank was knocked off the stage, yeah. um, you know, it's fairly well known that uh, Frank viewed what happened subsequently as sort of Flo and Eddie turning their backs on him mm, yeah. and uh, sort of bad-mouthing him in the press and all that right. sort of thing. And I think, you know, I think he was happy to have somebody from that era on his side still. Okay. So he still, you know, George Duke came back at That's that right. point. Yeah. Jeff Simmons was there. Ainsley Dunbar still played drums. Right. And I think that's that's part of it. But I do think he did have a, a soft spot for Jeff. Yeah. And um, of course, Jeff came back for the uh, Roxy shows. Right. Yeah. Be, I think in part because Frank wanted him to be in the movie. Yeah. In the Roxy movie. Yeah. And after that. Um, he toured with the band through the spring of 74 and uh, then was fired again. So, oh, okay. <laughs> and as far as but I know, they never spoke again. leaving before he would be fired. That's yeah. true. I mean, yeah. there's there are various reasons that I have heard, but the most uh, convincing would appear to be yeah. some sort of... Uh, um, very important do not violate this band rule yeah rule kind of thing you yeah. guys can read into that what you will yeah um so we don't unless jeff tells the story though we'll never have his side of it right yeah so that was yeah that was pretty uh it's pretty interesting though because normally you're right yeah if somebody crossed frank in that way yeah they were probably not coming back to the band yeah only other exception i can think of being Ray Collins. Right. Who yeah. ping-ponged back for year, back and forth for years. That's right. Although, I'm trying to think... Yeah, because... But even with... Uh, I, mean, I might have this wrong, but like uh, when you hear Ray Collins on apostrophe uh, you know, during the Nanook se- sequence, I, I just assumed that maybe Frank was using a bit of uh, 
tape from like the Ruben and the Jets sessions or something like that in isolation. Oh no, I think I think it is I think it is Ray doing the parts okay. at the time because uh, Nigel Lennon, who was around at the time, that's right. She writes a little bit about Ray. Yeah, yeah. T- talks about Ray being around at the time. Yeah, okay. And, and I think you know I don't know if Ray was trying to get back into the band, which you know at that point he that probably wasn't much of an option. No, um, but. You know, he he was still at least on speaking terms with Frank. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, but that, of course, ended pretty quickly also. <laughs> so he wasn't around very long after the apostrophe sessions. But no, I do think he was... Okay. He was there. All right. Um, it's funny because, you know, Beefheart may be another example of a guy who Frank maintained a relationship with subsequently that yeah. he felt betrayed him. And betrayed him several times yeah, throughout yeah. his career, and I can't imagine. I can imagine very few people getting that treatment that weren't Captain Beefheart. Like right. you had to be Don Vliet in order to either Don Vliet or an ex-wife, you know, or an ex-wife. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that kind of antagonism can't live with them, can't live without them. Mm-hmm. I've seen that among various couples, you know. Oh sure, uh, that I've known through the years, you know, mm-hmm. and there's a little bit of that, yeah. That's it, and, and I mean, and certainly in the eyes of the public and the and the press, yeah, um, those names are always going to be joined together. Yeah, and there's just no way to you can't separate Zappa and Beefheart in that way. No. you know, if you think if you're thinking of Beefheart, eventually you're coming to Frank. Yeah, and so, but you know, it's it's kind of interesting because Beefheart was in many ways at the be- certainly at the beginning of his career, he was his own. His own man, and in, in mm-hmm. fact, the only thing that he really took was the name, yeah, that from Frank, you know. And I know that Frank was very resentful of the fact that Beefheart wound up with a name that he created, yeah. But it was just a name. On the other hand, if 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 Frank is to be believed in his autobiography, he got the name from, you know, Blaise, the, yeah, uh, that's uncle. right, from his <laughs> uncle. <laughs> It's true. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, technically, how much of it... I I do know Frank was upset at him using the name, but realistically, I mean, yeah, how... I don't know how much right he had, you know, just... Beefheart had just as much right, you know. Don had just as much uh, right to use that name as anybody. But, yeah, those two names are sort of uh, indivisible, you know, and... That's always the way it should be. I mean, you know, yeah. Don said, uh, what was what was his quote, um, one of his last interviews that I heard? He was the only Frank Zappa I ever knew. <laughs> <laughs> Eddie, are you kidding? I've seen you on my TV. You could fit me in a $50 suit Oh, Eddie, are 
something my friends I am not kidding here at Zachary Hall we have 60 tailors in the back room we have the West's largest selection of portlies regulars longs extra longs and cadets now my friends say to me Eddie Eddie what do you think of the new double knits Eddie what do you think of the new double knits and I tell them I'll tell you something frankly my friends when the new double knits first came out I was not impressed but as you can see these pants I'm wearing are double knit. They stretch in all the right places. They're the most comfortable. Our model Tweety here will demonstrate. I have this lovely little seersucker. Wait a minute. shortly because I am a portly you promised you could fit me in a $50 suit Woo! Eddie are you kidding I am not kidding. Right here on the Miracle Mile, we have the West's largest selection of Portly Regular Cadet and Not only that, my brother Jake and little Emil and Sixty Taylor. Well, I always like uh, the air. Partly, you know, from Uncle Meat. Yeah. I always liked it. Well, partly the doo-wop. I always loved any doo-wop that Frank was going to do. Mm-hmm. But one lyric that always cracks me up is, you know, um, when the sped-up voice is singing at the end, being busted at the airport with special tape recordings. Yeah. Yeah. I always, I can identify with that, you know. You know and, they, and they grabbed me while I was, was boarding. Yeah. But yeah, special tape recordings. I think that, that describes a lot of us, you know, whether we collect Frank Zappa or Captain B. Fart mm-hmm. or anything, you know, we're going to have some things that are special, and we're going to get a little upset, you know, if, if anyone else grabs it, even if it is, you know, airplane, air, airplane security, you know. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and, you know, the funny, uh, it always makes me think that the fact that Frank always taped everything, you know, yeah. he always had his little, in, in 200 motels, you can see, yeah. you know, Ringo as, Ringo Starr as Frank. He's always got the. He's always sitting in the back of the room with the microphone. Yeah, like that's right. wearing the trench coat. And, yeah, wearing the trench coat and yeah. the glasses, <laughs> and he's always taping everything. But uh, I always think of that when I when I hear that line because you know who knows what he actually. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's why the the vault is so. I mean, to to have access to the vault. Joe yeah. Travers is a lucky guy because yeah. that's where all those tapes wound up. Yep. So you know, I would, I would just love, I would even love to just know what was in that vault. Maybe oh, someday yeah. we will.
They did do an album, though, of of uh, those recordings, which well, was Playground Psychotics. And you know, I love that album, uh, mm-hmm. partly because of the, some of those recordings, but also um, you get. Granted, it's a different edit, but you do get the set he did with uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono. That's right. They came out with their own edit for some time in New York City, mm-hmm. uh, an album that I still haven't gotten around to getting for myself. Sometime yeah. in New York City, but then again, I've got you know Playground Psychotics. And then I didn't, and of course, one of my favorite things on that in that set is uh, their cover of "Well." Yeah, yeah, which is amazing. I mean, this is to me. You know, I'm not. I love the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Now the Beatles solo, not quite so, so enthusiastic. Much, right. And when it comes to John Lennon, maybe I'm not the world's biggest John Lennon fan. You mm-hmm. know, although I've come to have a balanced view about him. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, I think really the the best perspective I have on John Lennon is what Frank Zappa said during a television interview. Someone called in to Frank and said, well, tell me about John Lennon. He was a saint for our time, preaching peace. And Frank said, I I have a different perspective. He was a very nice man, and I got always got along with him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, you know I, I think that's the most balanced view to have about someone like John Lennon mm-hmm. for all... That our contemporary pop culture celebrates of him. That's right. But here he is, and, and so I have to say, all right, as a pop culture person, 
I, I share with Frank Zappa that kind of balanced view. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the records he made, you know, I'm not such a big fan of them. But I have to admit, the first time I ever heard that performance of Well recorded at the Fillmore, mm-hmm. uh, especially of Frank Zappa's mix and edit, I was like, this is the best post-Beatles John Lennon performance I've ever heard. Yeah. You know, he's working. He has to sing his butt off because the mothers are not about are not about to let him slide. And Frank, at least what, what Frank puts in the edit, you know, a, a great you know, a couple of great guitar solos on it. Sure. Wasn't until I heard, so, viewed on a bootleg, bootleg DVD, the footage. Yeah. And all of a sudden you realize this is longer with an extra guitar solo or two. Mm-hmm. And then you realize, you know what, the cuts do serve to kind of tighten that up for playground psychotics. It does. But um, it's one that, um, but, you know, I, I remember getting the, uh, 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 I remember getting uh the set playground psychotics, and uh, realizing that it wasn't all music; that it was the uh, the tour recordings, the, mm-hmm. the oddball stuff. Uh, that you know, Frank dressed as Ringo Starr mm-hmm. is you know taping sure. in the rooms, and you realize, oh, okay, you know. And at first, I thought it was just simply a simple documentary sort of thing, mm-hmm. but yet there is some craft. I, there have been some writers and analysts who point out continuing trends and concepts uh, through the di- through the two. St- through the, throughout the two discs, they, it makes you realize, okay, there's a bit of artistic intent going on in here, mm-hmm. not just documentary, but artistic intent going on with that there, too. You know I love you, baby, please don't go. Right now, I love you, baby. Please don't go. 
so at any rate, yeah, with with all those uh, documentary tapes, it'd be interesting to listen to at least, you know, for the sake of just hearing certain people at various times, how Frank listened to them and what he would have made of them would have been an entirely different thing. Playground psychotics is is a case in point in that. Yeah, yeah I mean, playground psychotics is it was. Um, my understanding was that a number of those recordings were going to be an album called the official Mothers of Invention bootleg album, okay. which was to have come out in 1972. Mm. Um, there is, by the way, an, a, a version of the original album circulating if, mm. if you ever want to hear it. Yeah, but um, but yeah, that it it would have been interesting. It it would be very interesting to have a lot of those. Uh, you know what I would describe as we're getting a lot of beeping outside folks um, <laughs> by the way if I can insert uh, a, a, a bit of point here yeah uh, I in addition to my rock record collecting I also mm-hmm. collect a fair bit of classical music especially yeah. historical recordings and one of my favorite little bits of uh, from the classical recording world uh, in the 1920s uh, the conductor for the Philadelphia Orchestra at the time Leopold Stokowski yep Recorded uh, four-minute analyses of uh, of a symphonic work to go with the records, mm-hmm. uh, the 78, 78 RPM albums, and there's one that he did for Antonin Dvorak's um, Symphony uh, New World Symphony, yep. Symphony Number no. Nine, uh, and it turns out I realized this. I have two different versions of it, one on CD and one that was on an RCA LP, and it turned out they were different takes. Mm-hmm. Why? Because in one take you hear a car horn, yeah. <laughs> and on the other take you hear a streetcar going by. Yeah, you know, so <laughs> that's great. So, so ambient noise of traffic noise outside. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always amused by that. So it's always that, appropriate. So the fact that uh, here we are on Meadow Street, uh, listening to uh, traffic noise uh, that may or may not come through on this recording. Oh, it uh, probably it, it, will. Well, it, it, yeah, well, don't take those out. Yeah. Oh no, no, I'm leaving yeah. those in. <laughs> it's interesting. I was watching. Um, oh, the other great example is uh, oh, yeah. uh, Led Zeppelin. Yeah, uh, you know. The oh, that's right on uh, at the yeah. yes, that's you hear, right. You hear the, the airplane, airplane going over, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, plant says to leave the airplane on. That's right. <laughs> yeah, Eddie Kramer's saying trying to get the airplane out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> leave it right in the song. <laughs> we, uh, I was watching. Um, there was a, a TV show. I'm sure you guys know. I got a secret yeah. that aired in the early '60s. And uh, John Cage was on one episode. Did you ever see the clip of him performing Water Walk? No. no. I was. It, it just reminded me of how, you know in um, in the Uncle Meat movie, yeah, where uh, Dom DeWilde as uh, Don Preston as the monster, who yeah. um, points out that anything can be music. Yeah. And um, he's pointing out that you know, for example, he says, "Well, this sock." Can be music, or this fuming beaker, or this, you know, and it, it's so funny because when you watch Water Walk being performed, which okay. is just John Cage going through an assortment, there is a piano there, okay. but the rest of it is sort of like there's a bathtub that's filled with water, and he has to dunk these, I think it's a rug or something in there, yeah. and um, three radios that he just taps on and then at the end of the piece he knocks the radios over and all that stuff (laughs) and i'm thinking you know like when you listen to some of frank's um you know his belief that anything can be music right a lot of that obviously uh, you know i think 
I don't think that the influence of John Cage on that could be overstated. Right, that's right. Yeah, because what, what, what music is, what we're doing, is just hearing individual tones, and it's us using our intellect. This is Kamara talking, you know. Yeah. Uh, Kamara philosophy talking here. It's us as critical listeners, you know, not just merely hearers, but we begin listening when we start connecting uh, individual notes to become melodies or chords, and hence progressions, you know. Um, you know, and so, um, yes, what John Cage did, and I think uh, Frank did quite well in this regard, too, was say, how about if we can retain those musical connections without, but in media other than tones? Mm-hmm. What can we do to have that kind of, make use of that continuity that we have in our intellects? That's right. So, um, yeah, what you say is very much in line with that, you know. Um, so, uh, um and that, that, you know, let's hope that maybe uh, more of Frank's uh, film footage, along with the audio uh, tapes, can be uh, can be released. You know, so uh, yeah, we've got this. Well, we got this Roxy thing coming out pretty soon, or uh, already out now. Yeah, with, uh, just Eagle Rock. literally just came out. Yeah. And so that that is the big thing that I think everybody was waiting for. Yeah, uh, was the Roxy movie. So. You know, I'm I'm very happy that that they managed to get it out. I'm, yeah. I was sad that Gail did not live to see it because right. it, it was by far the most requested thing. Um, you know, from the fan base, sure. I mean, everybody wanted to see uh, the Roxy. So I'm glad that that got out there. But there's so many shows. I mean, there's yeah. you know even something like Barcelona 1988. Yeah. I think would would make a a, a great. Um, DVD or Blu-ray if they could find the master for it. Oh, okay. You know, have you seen that show? No, I haven't. No. Uh, yeah, it's on YouTube. Yeah. Um, that's a great. Yeah, the '88 band was. I would love to see it. Partly to see how. See, I missed out on the 1988 shows. Yeah, I. Uh, that was the only time I saw him. Yeah, I. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never seen him, um, and my only opportunities to have seen him were were in 1988. Mm-hmm. Um, now I was still going to college in. Uh, in Annapolis, Maryland, and um, I remember the day I was catching a ride to go back up to Geneva, New York for the holidays, right at noon, uh, um, 12 noon, um, one of my friends had the radio on to a Washington, D.C. radio station, and they announced, it was a pre-recorded ad, you heard Peaches and Regalia, Mm -hmm. they said, Frank Zappa, coming to play at the Warner Theater, tickets now on sale, and in those days... I didn't have a credit card. Not very many other people did, mm-hmm. you know. And so, and I, I knew that by the time I was going to get back after the holidays uh, to be able to buy a ticket, the shows were going to be sold out, which so they I, were. Yeah, and so I missed out on that. And then a couple months later, Frank adds a couple, uh, some more dates to the American tour, mm-hmm. which included uh, Towson State uh, College or Towson State University, which is over in the Baltimore area. Mm-hmm. And I could have gone to see that, except it was the night before my required oral exams to graduate from college. So oh, yeah, was, you, you had to gonna, do that. I had to do that. You and, had to do that. And I thought, but I thought at the time, you know what, he's going to come out with another album or two in another year. He's going to tour again another year or two. I'll have plenty of opportunities then. And then what happens? He gets, well, he breaks up the band. Other transitions are made, and then he's diagnosed with that cancer. Mm-hmm. That was it. Yeah, that was it. I mean, he was going to be back in the fall. 
Yeah. So I had only seen one show, which was the second show in Hartford that year. Okay. And I had said, I know he came back to Nassau Coliseum later and all that stuff. And I said, well, that's all right. I'll go see him yeah. in the fall. Yeah. Um, but, of course, the band broke up before before that happened. So, yeah. Um, but, I, no, I, uh, so, so when I would be <coughs> listening to, like, the best band uh, you, you never heard or um, make a jazz noise here... You know, it, I appreciate that fuller sound, but then I get wondering, how did that? How is that all set up on stage? You know, I mean, from watching his other videos, including um, "Does Humor Belong in Music," you get a sense of what the basic band setup was. Yeah. But to have the added instruments and where they were and yeah. how they function as part of the show, I had no idea. You know. Yeah, I mean, the um, yeah, you had the five-piece horns. It's actually a pretty organized stage, but yeah. you had. Um, your five-piece horn section in the back line with the percussion and and the uh, drums. Yeah, and then everybody else was in the front line. So yeah. it was, um, you know, it was pretty pretty organized. Uh, you know, considering when you factor in some of the chaotic uh, <laughs> um, stage shows. And I mean, by, by the time you get to '88, everybody has their place on stage. Yeah. And they don't really, um, other than Frank and Ike, they aren't aren't necessarily interacting. So you're not seeing Jimmy Carl Black being dry humped up on stage. No, yeah. not. <laughs> <laughs> no. Sadly, those days were long. Although there was enough, you know, zaniness. You know, there was enough madness to oh, go yeah. around. But it was carefully choreographed madness. Sure. You know. Sure. I mean, there were. You know the 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 main differences from night to night being in the uh, secret word abuse yeah. that would be because they, you know, they'd come up with a word every night and they would, um, and the the object was to get Frank to laugh. So yep. so you know Ike in particular is a master of yeah of whether it's you know, Smurf me or you know, yeah yeah silver yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> high house silver is a classic example of that. And you know Frank was not averse to you to issuing recordings where he just completely loses it, you yeah. know, because it's just it's fun, you know. And you hear those on the you can't do that on stage anymore series. That's it. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, again, you know, you're you're buying those albums for the live experience. You're not yeah. necessarily buying them to hear the songs as such, unless you're a newbie, you know, to Frank Zappa, and that you know that might be the best crash course for the Zappa universe. Are those six it might volumes. be, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You could because you right. get all phases, all eras, except and then except, except for the very last recordings, in which case you buy the Yellow Shark. Sure, but uh, but for every you know for the years for the touring years from uh, sixty seven, you know sixty eight, sixty nine, on up through eighty eight, you get a little bit of everything. You know, repertory, musicians, uh, you know, circumstances, you know, the whole bit. So. Most of the major compositions. Yeah. Uh, live that were performed live yeah. are on the stage set in yeah. one form or another. Mm -hmm. So uh, sometimes more than once. You even get an instrumental version of you know the Mammy Nuns from Thingfish. Yeah, yeah. You may not get a vocal version of anything, but at least you get some instrumental bits from that. You know, otherwise you know co controversial album. Be sure, and yeah. it's a brilliant solo too. Yeah, it is. So I mean, it's. Um, you know, Frank was kind of, he was on fire on that 82 tour. Yeah. And, you know, people say that his guitar playing um, uh, was less, uh, you know, his, his prowess was lessened over the last couple of tours. I don't really see it that way. I mm -hmm. think he just got 
um, interested in doing different things. Especially more, in, well, the synclavier for one, and then mm -hmm. the composition, you know, yeah. as well. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't, I mean, you know, I still think his, his solos in 88 were great. I just think yeah. they, were, they were maybe a little more stately yeah. sounding. They were um, not as not as aggressive, but he but he was still uh, his ability to solo was well beyond that of most. Yeah. You know, I mean, still you know he was still Frank Zappa at that yeah. point. Oh, my God. 
you know, I actually always feel for, for Dweezil because Dweezil had to do a lot of work to try to figure out what his father was doing. And then do a little more so he doesn't come off as an imitator. Right, exactly. You know, there's, you know, um, you know, um, you know I, I've been, uh, you know, I, I attended one of his shows. It was, it was in fact, it was a, a few days after Michael Jackson had died because Dweezil mm. did an encore of Beat It. You know, oh, yeah. You know, as his encore. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, uh, and, uh, yeah, but there was nothing, whether what I, you know, what I heard live, or for that matter, anything else that I've heard, you know, through other uh, means, you know, that, yeah, he's playing Frank's music in the Frank style, but he's not coming off as an imitator. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, that's just, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and at the same time, Dweezil plays his own music, too. Mm -hmm. So, uh... Just released a new album recently. Yeah, so... Yeah, you know, there's a lot to be said for that that should be recognized, but uh, but we ought to be thankful that Dweezil has been doing these tours and uh, not just keeping the repertory alive, but just doing so well with it. That's it. I mean, he's obviously a brilliant musician. And, you know, Dweezil can do things that Frank could not do in terms of technical, you know. Um, now, whether you value technique over, you know, feel... Yeah, is a, is a different thing, but I think Dweezil has a great combination of technique and feel. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's plenty of technically brilliant, maybe even genius guitar players out there that don't really have a great deal of feel. No, a lot of Frank's feel, of course, came from the blues. And I was going to say, especially post-war blues. Um, mm. Let's face it. Well, you know, I mean, a lot of what we associate with uh, blues uh, is the post-war electric blues. Yep. And you know, you're not going to get in Charlie Patton or Robert Johnson, you know, or mm-hmm. for that matter, any of the guys uh, in not just in Mississippi but throughout the Southeast and all that. You're not going to have that, mm-hmm. especially with the acoustic guitar players. You're just not going to have it. It's really with the electric guitar, especially with people like um, Johnny Guitar Watson, yep. Eddie uh, uh, Guitar Slim, mm-hmm. and um, um, you know, Gatemouth Brown when he was starting out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was. Uh, that's really the brand of R&B guitar that Frank cut his teeth on. And you know what? We've got some excellent guitarists now, but they're no longer playing. Even among African-American guitarists, they're, for the most part, that era of the blues has passed. They've yeah. got their current era that they're developing. Could they play in the manner of Guitar Slim or, uh, or Johnny Guitar Watson? They'll have the technique down. Will they have the feel? No, but we shouldn't expect them to either. You know. That's true because yeah. music has to, you know, just like everything else in life, music has to progress. Right. It has to move forward. I mean, do we really want to hear Robert Cray playing like um, Johnny Guitar Watson when he, when Robert Cray is the best Robert Cray style guitar? Yeah, player? absolutely. Yeah, that's true. That's absolutely. the short yeah, That's right. You know, so. Yeah, I mean, you know, there there are a few people who could who could pull off that one note guitar solo in uh yeah. was it three hours past midnight yeah. like uh like johnny guitar watson could do but yeah you know i mean look how amazingly influential that was on frank that sure was you yeah. know you could say more i think he did say this you can say more with the he said more with that one note mm-hmm. you know in terms of just going after you yeah then uh you know, than a lot of other people that he heard subsequently, you know. Yeah. And Steve I always said that Frank had um, um, these sort of blues with cayenne pepper chops mm-hmm. that were, uh, that just, you know, and, and, but he would take in these other influences. Like when Vi was in the band, mm-hmm. um, Frank 
some of that influence came through him, I think. Yeah, I, of course it helped uh, in preparation that Vi transcribed all those solos for the Shut Up and Play Your Guitar book. You know, the, the Frank Zappa guitar book. Mm-hmm. But most of those solos were from the Shut Up and Play Your Guitar volumes, you know, the LPs. So yeah, that's the best way to study another uh, musician's style is transcribing it. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, playing with Zappa and the band took him the rest of the way towards you know that kind of mastery and appreciation. Yeah, yeah. and it, it's fascinating when you think yeah. about it because you know, and then Frank in turn was influenced by some of those um, so-called metal techniques because mm-hmm. even though Frank had sort of pioneered a lot of that stuff, right? Or or was or was one of the uh, one of the pioneers of Say, like, for example, your tapping technique, which became mm-hmm. ubiquitous in the 80s. Right. Frank was doing that as early as 73, 74. Yeah, I remember, well, a friend of mine who listens to a lot of Genesis, when Genesis was good. Yeah. You know, um, he noted Gabriel that, era. Yeah, Gabriel era. Now, I don't know the band members of Genesis well enough to s- cite specific names, but it turns out that uh, they were doing tapping technique. In yeah, Steve Hackett. Yeah, that yep. would be, yeah, so 74 or thereabouts it was when they were doing that, if not before. So you got that going on. Yeah, I mean, maybe somebody will point out that John McLaughlin was doing it earlier or something right. like that. But, but you know, I know that Frank was... Yeah. Um, you know, Frank was definitely... Uh, and he had mastered it. He was doing yeah. it very well. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, when you get to, like, 82, 84, he had picked up some of those, um, those heavy overdrive um, metal... Mm-hmm. licks and stuff like that. And he had an aggressive tone because he was using for one thing in 84 he was using a metal pick. Yeah. So that you can really hear it coming through, you know. Yeah. I mean, before that in in the band's time that you saw that Frank had this tone with his SG that that um I can't I think it might have been Billy Bob Thornton of all people who who said it was like razor blades. You know, yeah. it just cut through yeah. in a way that other guitarists didn't do. Yeah. Well, that has to do with Frank's attitude, though, yeah. toward it. You know, Frank was not the kind of guy who was going to play nice guitar solos. No. I mean, you know, just... And it, it's funny because it starts with, yeah, that post-war blues. Yeah. yeah. Still, I don't know that he ever had, right? That would be fair to say that he never had a bigger influence in terms well, of guitar playing. Oh, in terms of guitar playing. I, I think you may be right there. Yeah. Because yeah. even when you listen to the... Um, you know, earliest albums like Freak Out, um, you know, or uh, for that matter, Ruben and the Jets. Yeah, uh, those, yeah, the post-war R&B guitarists, that's going to have... You know, you're, you're not hearing Chuck Berry through Frank. Mm-hmm. You know, that's you're, true. You're not hearing Chuck Berry. You know, you're hearing... Which is interesting. Yeah, you interesting. Know, it, you know, really, it's more the guitarists that recorded, like Eddie, uh, like Guitar Slim, who recorded for Specialty. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't record for chess records like Chuck Berry did. Mm-hmm. You know, he's recording for Specialty. So and of course a lot of what Frank's depending on is whatever records are being distributed for sale in Southern California. So uh, which is not necessarily everything. I mean it's easy to forget that now. That's it. You only got what you got. Yeah, and of course he's still going to look for the meanest, nastiest uh, records that he can find. Yeah. So uh, um, what was it? Because he when he talks about buying the uh, Verez album. Mm he said that he put aside a whole bunch of, oh, you know, it would be another influence. wouldn't be just post-war guitar, post-war saxophone. Mm, that's because right. Because he talks about yeah. putting aside a whole bunch of Joe Houston records uh, 
to get that Verez album. Mm -hmm. He was buying a whole bunch of singles, and he mentions Joe Houston. Then he sees the Verez record, the one that he read about, mm -hmm. you know, and he realizes, I've been, I've been hearing about this record. I need to have it while it's right here. Sure. So, uh, so, but yeah, but that's another thing is we have to take into account in terms of Frank's guitar sound, not only post-war electric guitar, but also post-war R&B saxophone, mm -hmm. the honkers and shouters. Those have every bit of much of a influence as, um, you know, as uh, any of the guitar, you know, any of the guitarists, know as I think of it. Yeah, yeah, that's true because you know, I mean, he can. Yeah, I mean, you know, in that way, I mean, he can sort yeah. of he can wail like a saxophone player. Yeah, and uh, that does differentiate, you know, what he was doing from certainly a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were other people who were trying to do that subsequently, like Clapton was trying to. Right. You know, he was using sort of those Coltrane. Right. sort of influence well he was using sort of that Coltrane influence to help extend out what Cream was doing and Roger McQuinn and the birds were also ripping off from uh, Coltrane as well yep but actually you know when you get you could argue that you know in the original mothers the mothers of invention yeah he had great saxophonists but they were coming from jazz backgrounds mm -hmm. and what they were playing still has a lot of jazz trappings to it uh, as hard as they may be playing in an R&B approximation. Mm -hmm. But here's Frank, you know, with his, uh, even though he's playing guitar, he's bringing more of an R&B sax uh, sensibility to the music, yeah. more so arguably than his saxophonist. You know, the, even though we're talking about the Gardner brothers, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, and Ian Underwood, you know, there's something that Frank is providing that you're not quite yet getting from his saxophonist. Well, maybe Motorhead, Motorhead Sherwood, for all his, you know, even though he may not have the kinds of skills that the other saxophonists have, he brings, he provides some moments that otherwise you're not getting from the others. Yeah, you know? that's very true. And I, I think, um, uh, I'm trying to think of who the first real bona fide, I, I guess it must be Napoleon, Yeah. before you get to somebody who... Really understands yeah. that R and B sax approach because you're right. right. The Gardner brothers, well, Bunk and Ian, yeah, as the saxophone players in the band, they did not have any. They did not come from R and B at all, right? Particularly, right. particularly Ian did right. not come from R and B, and probably hadn't played virtually any, yeah. Uh, Honking fifties style sax numbers, Frank, but right. probably hadn't played any of it. Yeah. So that's yeah, it's interesting to think that you have to go to nineteen seventy three before yeah. Frank actually has somebody in the band who can do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not that he wouldn't have had access to it before, but right. you know, and there were periods like you would think that a, a um, R and B sax player would fit in well with say the vaudeville band, but instead you had George yeah. Duke doubling on trombone yeah so <laughs> that's it you oh, just yeah. expect the unexpected Charma.
You know what's one one of the more interesting people as part of, uh, we've been talking about musicians, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, the musicians in Zappa's touring band, and yet one of the more interesting um, people as part of the Zappa universe or whatever is Nicholas Slonimsky. Yeah. And at the day job, you know, as a music librarian, I know him for... uh, being a longtime uh, editor of Baker's Biographical Dictionary of Musicians, mm-hmm. which is a standard reference work. It's for sure. um, it's what you we have the new the New Grove Dictionary of Music and Musicians is, is our encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. But if you want something more up to date to cover composers since World War II, Baker's is um, the standard uh, reference work. And uh, Slonimsky, um was the editor for the years when it really when coverage of post-war music uh, was increasing for that work. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, Slonimsky is important for compiling a book of scales uh, that's still in use by both classical and jazz musicians uh, alike. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then, of course, uh, early in his career, he was a conductor, and he's you know, well known for having uh, done both the premiere performance and the first recording of Ionization by Verez. Mm-hmm. So, you know, very um, big... Uh, Presence in uh, music history, and, and but also because as editor of Baker's uh, Biographical Dictionary has a large standing among music librarians, so mm-hmm. I can't really avoid his work on an everyday uh, basis. But it was really, um, you know, uh, kind of an odd thing, uh, you know. Uh, and later in his life, Slonimsky was included in a number of tributes for Zappa uh, in interviews and things like that. Yes. The, the strangest thing is, um, is initially, Slonimsky did not uh, have a very high opinion of, of Zappa, of mm-hmm. Frank. Uh, and I still remember when I was in graduate school, uh, the teacher, who was the music librarian at, at the State University of New York at Buffalo, read with approval as if this was not only true, but oh, how zany of Slonimsky. Yeah. You know, and he reads uh, Frank's uh, by. Biography. This is in 1978, um, and uh, is, this is in 1978. It's a short. Uh, it's a short entry, but I'll just read it through. Yeah, go uh, ahead. Yeah, his family moved to California, where he managed to squeak through a few grades of a permissive high school. He played drums. In 1964, formed his own group, Mothers of Invention. He cultivated higher learning to the extent of actually spending a few hours a week in libraries. In music, he claimed to be a subliminal disciple of Verez. He made much more money than any of the modern greats by giving multimedia spectacles in which he and his group assaulted the eardrums with 200 decibel noises. His record albums began selling big, and Zappa's name itself, Onomatopoeic, and its suggestions of instant zap became a household word in the frug besotted catacombs of Southern California <laughs> that's spreading its sound and odor across the Union and even across the Atlantic. It is his aesthetic credo that classical music is, quote, the province of old ladies and faggots, end quote, and adventure. <laughs> My God! You know, you write an entry like that, you're setting yourself up for a libel suit. Sure, you know? absolutely. <laughs> you know, and uh, it's fascinating because you know you would think that Frank might have read that, or you wonder or, if he had. I, I I think he was very much aware of what was being written about him. Yeah, he, you know, uh, and so if he had, he turned out he was a very in what he wound up doing 
with and for Slonimsky was extremely gracious. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, in, uh, uh, Slonimsky writes in his autobiography that in 1981, you know, three years after the entry that I just wrote, mm-hmm. that uh, you know Frank gives him a call and says, uh, and, and I'm reading from Slonimsky's uh, autobiography, Perfect Pitch, and this happens in 81. And Frank says, yeah, I never realized you were in Los Angeles, and I so wa- and I want so much to get in touch with you about your book of scales. You know, and Slimsky says, I was startled. Well, you better be if yeah, you don't allow right. an entry like that, you know, <laughs> into a, you know, a reference work. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so, um, yeah, Frank uh, has uh, his chauffeur fetch him and uh, brings him up to his house, and uh, they get along great. And in fact, even at one point... Um, not long afterwards, Frank invites him to sit in with the um, with the band at mm-hmm. their next concert. Uh, it was in uh, at Santa Monica, California. So extremely gracious of Frank to do so and, and begin this friendship that lasted for the rest of Frank's life. That's right. Uh, Slonimsky outlived uh, Frank, and so then in the next edition of Baker's uh, in 1984, the this uh, rewritten entry is very nice, very detailed. I'll just read a couple other sentences to show to what extent that uh, the attitude uh, in this work for Frank uh, was an about face. Uh, they say, in talking about uh, Zappa's compositions, he says um, he describes them as truly astonishing, full orchestral scores, reveling in artful, dissonant counterpoint. And he names huh. things like Bob and Dacron and Sad Jane and Moe and Herb's uh, Vacation. So, and then there's another another uh, uh, bit. Uh, is uh, yeah, um, yeah. He even mentions uh, you know an accounting of Zappa's scatological and sex- sexological proclivity stands in remarkable contrast to his unimpeachable private life and total absenten- abstention from alcohol and narcotics drugs. So it's a very properly sensitive uh, entry, mm-hmm. one much more detailed uh, and a lot less scathing than what had appeared in the previous edition six years before. And so how do you account for that? Well, it's not just knowledge. It's, I think, I think Frank, Frank's befriending of Slonimsky had a lot to do with this. And I think oh, it yeah. says a lot, well, not only for Slonimsky to have, you know, as they say in St. Paul, the Damascus moment, mm-hmm. but it says That's a right. lot for Frank, uh, his own, um, you know, the quality of his soul in uh, reaching out and contacting and befriending someone who had written rather badly of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's saying something, considering all the other critics who had written badly about Zappa up until that point. That's true, because, yeah. you know, Frank would tear journalists apart anyway. You yeah. Know? I mean, it, he certainly wouldn't have time for anybody that he knew yeah. had already written a, a piece to slam him. Yeah. So that's... It, it is. It, it's extremely gracious. And in yeah. fact, I think the very last interview that Frank gave yeah. was um, for a documentary about Slonemsky. Yeah, so, that sounds right. Yeah. And that that was from his, uh, you know, that was in the final, okay. kind of in his final weeks. That's uh-huh. on YouTube. Okay. Um, so that, yeah, that's it's very interesting when you yeah. think about it. <laughs> that's great. But, uh, so I, I, there's a little bit of that whenever I... In my daily work, I have to kind of, you know, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> eye rolling, you know, to you know, to your pod audience. Yeah, I'm doing a little bit of eye rolling. Now. That's right. 
pleasure. This is Nicholas Slanemski. He's 83 years old. If there's any musicians in the audience, then you know who Mr. Slanemski is. If you're not a musician, well, let's see, how can I put it to you? This man has not only conducted the world premiere of many of the greatest works of modern classical music, but he's the author of many books, including the Bible of uh, improvisation, the <coughs> thesaurus of scales and patterns, which some of you might have studied out of. I know some of the guys in this band have studied out of. And besides writing these books, Mr. Slinovsky plays the piano, and that's what he's going to do right now. And that's our show. Thank you so much for listening, folks. But before we go, I thought I would give you the rundown of the musical material that you heard in this episode of the ZappaCast. We kicked off with the semi-fraudulent Direct from Hollywood Overture and Mystery Roach from the 200 Motels album, followed by Evelyn, A Modified Dog from the One Size Fits All album, followed by Agency Man and Epilogue from the Ahead of Their Time album recorded at the Royal Festival Hall in London in October of 1968. We heard The Dangerous Kitchen from the Man from Utopia album. We heard Anything from the Greasy Love Songs album, which was, of course, taken from the original vinyl mix of Cruising with Ruben and the Jets. We heard Galoot Update and Brown Moses from the Thingfish album. We heard Library Card featuring Herman Krenchmar from the Everything is Healing Nicely album. We heard 
Willie the Pimp Part 2 from the 2012 Universal Remaster CD of the Fillmore East June 1971 album. We heard Eddie Are You Kidding from Just Another Band from L.A. We heard The Air from the Uncle Mead album. Well from the Playground Psychotics album featuring John Lennon on guitar and vocals and Yoko Ono on vocal. Big Swifty from the 1988 performance in Barcelona, Spain. Charva from the Mystery Disc recorded in Cucamonga in 1964. And we heard A Pound for a Brown on the Bus from the December 11, 1981 show at the Civic Auditorium in Santa Monica, California, featuring Nicholas Slanimsky on piano. We will close out the show with a final selection, Amnerica from the Civilization Phase 3 album released in 1994. <laughs>
That's our show. Thank you very much for listening. The ZappaCast was produced and edited by Scott Parker, Andrew Greenway, and Scott Fisher. Be sure to check out Andrew's website at www.idiotbastard.com for all the latest Zappa news, and also to purchase Andrew's book, Zappa the Hard Way, the definitive account of the 1988 Frank Zappa Broadway The Hard Way Tour. For those of you interested in obtaining my Zappa books, my website is located at www.spbpublishing.webs.com. And if you order the books directly from me, I'll sign them for you. My books are also available from www.gnsmusic.com, purveyors of the finest Zappa merchandise anywhere, as well as www.amazon.com and many other right-thinking booksellers. And for more information about Scott Fisher, you can go to fishersflicker.com. That's F-I-S-C-H-E-R-S-F-L-I-C-K-E-R.com. Scott is a very wonderful musician and songwriter, and you can check out some of his music at that website. If you wish to contact us, drop us a line at MOI1969, that's 1969, at SNET.net. On behalf of Andrew Greenaway and Scott Fisher, this is Scott Parker saying thank you again for listening. And until next time, good night, boys and girls. Thanks a lot. Good night.